not doing that again, are we? <laughs> I forgot. Is that what take it from the top means? Start all over again? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't know that. The Great America Congress. What did you think? Taking it from the top, man. Thought maybe it was Welcome, like, start where we finished off. Congresswoman. <laughs> that, how would that you be taken from the top? You have been invited to the special sitting of this Congress because of your donations to one of the greatest podcasts in the land, the Great America Podcast. And now I invite you to please take your seats as we welcome our chairpersons, Mr. Darren Grimes and Mr. Graham Dunlop. And welcome to the Grime America Black Budget Support Feed. <laughs> Okay, guys, welcome back to the Black Budget. Uh, of course, start this off by saying big thanks to all of you. Um, because other than the live stream, if you're listening to this after the fact, it means you are the supporter of the show, and you are the only reason the show gets to keep going, and we appreciate that. Of course, that uh, does bring up the next thing. If you're listening to this <laughs> and you are not a supporter of the America show, you are stealing. Um, and you can, I'll leave that on your conscience as to uh, how do you'd like to deal with that. Uh, Karma will get him. Karma will get him, yeah. So, you know, usually I've had actually a couple people that have come along after and said, you know what, I've been listening to the Black Budget feed. Here, I'm going to subscribe. I feel bad. Uh, and before we get too far along, before I introduce Randall, before I forget, it is uh, one of our favorite listeners' birthdays today. Mr. And supporter of the show. Yeah, oh, big-time supporter of the show. He's also our Minister of Travel. Master of Travel. <laughs> um, and that, of course, is Alan. Uh, he is 58 today. Um, so his wife, Jane, who I've talked, spoke to as well, she offered to do some healing for my wife when she was having a, oh, one nice. of her episodes, which we are finally starting to get some relief on. Um, but yeah, uh, she had emailed along, seems like a super lady and asked if we would wish Alan a, uh, happy birthday. We'll do one better. We'll dedicate this little episode of black budget show to you, Alan. Happy birthday, buddy. And we're going to get Randall to even wish you a happy birthday. Cause we know that you are a huge fan of Randall's work. If you will, Randall, you mind saying happy birthday, Alan? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Happy. And who am I saying happy birthday to? Alan. And you wanted me to sing happy birthday? I don't think you have to sing, but I won't object to it. <laughs> oh, okay. Just say happy birthday. Okay. Happy birthday. Who? But to who? I didn't get it. Oh, to Alan. Alan, happy birthday, Alan. So is today your birthday, Alan? Today is his yeah, birthday. Today is, yeah. 58. Yeah. He's a big fan yeah. of yours, too. So. Yeah, you know... Yeah, yesterday was my birthday. Oh, wow. How old? Really? You want to know? No, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> well, I'm sure Alan will be stoked to hear that you guys almost have the same birthday. Maybe you guys can celebrate together one year. Well, we obviously have some serious partying to do. That's yeah. right. Grand America style. So, you guys keep that in mind for next time I'm up your way. 
Yeah, is that going to be this summer, do you think? Or I hope so. Right on. We'll I'm trying to plan some trips. Uh, well, you know, we talked about um, possibly a trip around the Nipigon area where you grew up. And I'm still interested in doing that because uh, there's some really interesting stuff going on there that I want to check out that around the lake itself and the origin of the lake. To my hometown. Wow. So, yeah. A good excuse to go back there. It was yeah. just great fishing. Oh, is it, is it good fishing there oh, in yeah. that lake? Bring, bring your fishing rod. I bet it is. Yeah, yeah. I've seen some things. Yeah. So thanks for yep. coming on the show again, Randall, and sharing uh, more time with us. And, and you've been one of our favorite guests. A lot of people found our show from you, and and you know we always get lots of great feedback. People just love love listening to you and love your work. So really appreciate your time with us again. Oh, I don't mind a bit. I I've enjoyed this show. You know, I I know what you guys are where you're coming from, and it's always casual and low stress and all of that. Oh, so, nice, good. <laughs> yeah, I, I look at it just. As, as fun. It's it's kind of like going to a party for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we hung out in this garage telling stories, and man, we, it was great. Yeah, for, for hours. So, so Randall, even since, like, I think it's been years, eh, Darren, since we had, had him on first? A couple of years. Stuff has changed the since... The first time we had him on was before we even started numbering him. Yeah, we first start, we first started talking about, you know, and, and your your work and the commentary impact stuff and the... And I mean, have have you... It seems like you've been vindicated a little bit. There seems to be work with a bunch of scientists and it seems to be gaining some mainstream headway in, in this whole this whole thing. Would you, would you agree? Oh, yeah, I would definitely agree. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been very gratifying to me to see, um, you know, hard evidence coming in on multiple fronts that kind of supports a scenario as I have been envisioning it for decades now. Yeah. I have had the opportunity to um, hang out with some of the uh, Comet research team that's been doing the, the cutting-edge work on this, um, who just published uh, some of the lead authors of the, the two recent papers, uh, The what uh, uh, George Howard of the... Uh, Cosmic Tusk calls the burn papers, um, which basically documents evidence from all over the world of massive firestorms around 12,000, between 12,800 and 12,900 years ago. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> there's been multiple uh, lines of information, you know, that have, that seem to be converging on that something really extreme something very major in the history of this planet happened just after 13,000 years ago. And um, I think from what I've seen now, it looks to me like probably the most extreme event that, that this planet has been subjected to perhaps in as long as 5 million years. And I think what it's shaping up to be is that we're going to have to understand this um, this event, if we're going to try to understand anything about our own, the context of our own human presence on this planet, the rise of our own history, um, because we we can begin to see a number of things that all kind of converge upon this time between, say, ten and 12,000 years ago when we begin to look at, um, you know, the domestication of animals, the, um, the, the transition from a nomadic life into a sedentary agricultural type of uh, oriented life. The dispersion, the dispersal of languages, um, which generally traces back to about 10,000 years ago, the rise of the first cities and urban complexes, which show up between eight and 10,000 years ago. What I've been suggesting all along here is we have to kind of rethink our, our history. You know, the, the typical model of prehistory, and if, 
up to this point has been sort of a, a, a an exponential curve where it's been riding along at a at a, a very low level of development for a long time, and then it begins this upward arc back around between 3,500 and 4,500 years ago, and then it's been exponentially rising until we reach uh, the pinnacle of this whole uh, phenomena, which is us right now in 2018. But what it really is beginning to look like is that the curve of human cultural development mimics the curve of planetary biological evolution, which rather than being a smooth curve from um, ever more primitive life forms into more complex life forms. It has been a sawtooth phenomena, so that you will have a proliferation of species for a while. Those species will be living abundantly in the world's oceans, on land. Then something happens, and the number of species drops precipitously and begins a long, arduous climb back up again after this event. And we now know that those events seem to be occurring with a, a high degree of regularity within the planetary history. And so just as we now are understanding the curve of biological evolution is not a smooth curve rising sharply at the end, the, the typical term that is used as a hockey stick uh, curve, it's now known that, 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 that the model for the evolution of life on Earth is sawtooth. Well, likewise, what I'm saying is we, it now is becoming apparent that, you know, we start building a civilization, we get a couple of thousand years to, to advance, to make discoveries, to learn things, to pass, pass on inherited knowledge, to begin to develop an infrastructure, and then something happens, the boom comes down, and boom, we're starting over again. And we see this repeatedly, uh, just on a, on a smaller scale within, say, the last five to 6,000 years. Um, the the uh, late Bronze Age collapse is a good example of that, where between right around 4,000 to 4,300 years ago, we see major climate shifts and major cultural disruption and um, collapse of cultures primarily around the Mediterranean, around the Levant region, on the eastern Mediterranean. Then if we expand our, our frame of reference a little bit, then we begin to see that you know we go back to uh, the very end of the last ice age, and there is a very extreme shift in the balance of nature on Earth, and this had profound consequences for human cultural development. So the model that it appears now is not that we've come to this smooth hockey stick curve from barbarism up to you know advanced, sophisticated, uh, you know industrial-based civilization, but actually it has been sawtoothed. Uh, civilization rises to a, a point, and then something interrupts the process, and we see, in effect, a, a dark age coming on, and then the dark age has to run its course, and then we see, uh, here once again, civilization seems to be advancing. Uh, you... Most recently, you know, dark, the dark ages that go back to, you know, the 5th and 6th century A.D. that lasted for three or 400 years is, is probably the most immediate example of that. Um, where basically cultural forward cultural momentum was just interrupted suddenly, and um, it took three to four centuries to recover from those events that occurred during the mid five hundreds. And that matched climate change so as that, well. And say that again, and that, Graham. And that matched climate changes as well, right? At that point. Oh yeah, 
Yeah. Yes, because what we see is a transition from what has been referred to as the Roman warm period into the the the, the cold of the dark ages. So you had you had years uh, where it was just extremely cold, and and we know from the record now that you know the atmosphere was dusty. Um, there was probably a combination of both volcanic events and impact type events that affected the uh, state of the the global climate and environment. You know, we know from records, I don't have them right in front of me in a moment, but maybe before it's over, I can pull up some of the accounts where um, the, um, you know, various monks and so forth that are in um, monasteries are are writing about the the fact that they haven't seen the sun for weeks. It's been overcast and hazy. You know, the, the, the crops are dying in the fields because of the cold weather. Um, you know, what happens when, when the climate goes cool is it contracts the growing season. And typically we've seen not only the shift, that we, we can actually pinpoint it to about 536 to 542 A.D., right in there. We see that there was a major downturn in the, the climate of the uh, northern hemisphere. And the consequence of that is is that in Europe, anyway, there was a collapse of agriculture. You had essentially two to three growing seasons where um, the crops basically died in the fields. What happened as a result of that was that people got hungry, they got weak, um, and then you had famine. Well, what happens in the case of a famine is that people, when they get weak and they don't have the, the, the nutrition that they need, their immune systems decline. Now what happens is you have opportunistic diseases that can come in in these weakened immune systems, and that's exactly what happened. You had this climatic downturn that lasted from 536 up into the 540s, Um, and then at 542 AD, you had what what is known as the Justinian Plague, um, which wiped out, in some places, half the population of Europe. In other places, it was not quite so much, and in other places, it was even more than half. But the consequence of that was that basically the forward momentum of Western civilization was was knocked back for essentially three centuries, Um, and that is what's come to be known as the Dark Ages. That was followed by a warming of the climate between 900 and 1000 AD, and that warming of the climate turned out to be very, very beneficial because now, um, you know, the growing season expanded. Um, you had an extra month every year, or in some cases longer than that, for, for crops to, to attain maturity. People started eating good again. Um, people got healthier. Um, so, you know, one of the consequences of people being in an unhealthy state is it, it brings up infant mortality. In other words, a lot more babies die. So what happens, say, between 900 and 1,000 A.D. is European population begin to expand uh, enormously because of the warm weather and the, available, the um, increased availability of nutritious food. After about a century and a half of this, Europe had become quite prosperous. So when you think about going from about the mid-900s up to the 1130s, what you see is you you go into this period of prosperity, and in 1130 A.D. is when um, the great master builders launched this tremendous, epic 150-year period of great cathedral building. Yeah which is a phenomenon that would have been entirely dependent upon having enough surplus wealth in European society to undertake such an enterprise, because 
when you begin to look at it, I don't know if you guys have ever traveled around Europe or not, but when you, you go to these towns and you look at these cathedrals like Notre Dame and Chartres and Amiens and Reims and Lyon and these, you're looking at something that's just incredibly phenomenal in terms of the level of social organization that, that's required. I mean, if we were going to look for modern analogs to that, you know, you'd have to say something like, I don't know, perhaps the Apollo space program or the Manhattan Project, where you know you have an, the resources of an entire society are oriented towards this one particular goal, right. and that's basically what we saw for 150 years in in Europe. We had, you know, it was hundreds of thousands of skilled craftspeople working on these. You know, you had the the, the quarrymen, the stone cutters, the sculptors, the glaziers, the carpenters. Um, the astronomers, the geometricians, you had this incredible organization behind this whole phenomena. Mm. That organization could not have happened without the surplus wealth that came in the wake of the medieval warm period. And what's interesting is, and I don't consider this to be a coincidence at all, when you see the sudden cessation of the great Gothic building boom within 10 to 20 years, it's like it's just going crazy, right? Just like for, for, you know, the decade of the 60s in America, we were just going nuts with the space program. And then come the early 70s after the last Apollo shot, boom, it just sort of, that was it. It was like over. And then, you know, we, 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 get in, we go into the space shuttle and all that, but it was nothing like the, the excitement and the dynamism and the, the level of, of interest, you know, of the 60s. Well, in the same way, analogous to that, it's like all, all of a sudden the impetus to build these incredible structures just evaporated within a decade or two. And it's been noted by several architectural historians that in some cases it looks like some of these cathedrals, you know, weren't quite finished, and the workmen just up and left and even left some of their tools laying behind. Mm. Well, here's the thing you got to understand is that in the early, and this happened in the early 1300s, right? Well, between 1314 and about 1340, the climate began to undergo the first in a series of spasms that was ushering in the Little Ice Age. <laughs> and once again, you had this same phenomena where you had um, years, uh, several years in a row, where it was just cold. They were referring to, you know, years without a summer, right? Crops dying in the field, people getting hungry again. Um, and then uh, I think it was in 13, around 1340, I forget the exact year, but it was right around in there, where you had the onset to the bubonic plague. And it was almost like a replay of the Justinian plague. In some cases, it completely wiped out the whole population. Whole villages were oftentimes abandoned. Um, there were so many dead people that they couldn't even bury them anymore. There were just piles and piles of dead people laying around because, um, you know, in some cases, the, the num- in some villages, the number of dead people far exceeded the number of survivors. So, um Yeah, it was really very, very nasty, brutish times, and this was the first phase of the Little Ice Age. And interestingly, when you look at it, you see that around the middle of this, in the 1500s, the Little Ice Age ameliorates for a while. And it was just during this episode where you see that Renaissance and and the rise of of learning and, and, and art and scientific inquiry again, and that, that little hiatus in the middle of the, of the Little Ice Age, was really valuable because it gave Western society the momentum to to leap over the second phase of the Little Ice Age, which didn't end really until the mid-1800s. 
And the second phase of the Little Ice Age has been, amongst those who have studied it, um, they've concluded it was probably some of the coldest centuries of the entire Holocene, which is the last basically 10 or 11,000 years since the end of the Big Ice Age. Now, you need to think about that because think about the implications of that. If the Little Ice Age, phase two of the Little Ice Age, was some of the coldest centuries since you know, literally in the last ten or 12,000 years, it's important to realize that when we're now talking about this modern warming that we're in the midst of now, that's being measured from that baseline. In other words, the baseline against which we are judging how much warming is, is going on in the modern world was the coldest several centuries in 10,000 years. And so no matter what was going, any kind of warming at all of the yeah. last century or two, it's going to look anomalous. We're still coming out of the Ice Age, aren't we? If, if, if you looked at the larger cycles, aren't we still coming out of an Ice Age, technically? They're going into one, I think. Well, see, that's, that's an interesting thing you bring up there, Graham, because you know how when you have a major seismic event, when you have an earthquake, oftentimes you'll have aftershocks, right? Yeah. yeah you'll have, and sometimes you'll even have foreshocks. Sometimes you'll have small... Uh, seismic rumblings that'll, that'll lead up to a, to a major uh, um, a major earthquake. Same way with volcanic eruptions. You might have, you know, the, 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 the volcano begins to come alive. Um, it rumbles. You know, there are quakings in the, in the terrain around it. And then it might throw it, say, this is totally the model of when Mount St. Helens blew its stack. You know, it was rumbling and, and giving forewarnings. It was about to blow its stack. On May 18th, I believe it was, 1980, it was the big explosion that blew out the whole north flank of the mountain and dropped it down into the valley. And then in the weeks after that, there were a whole series of declining aftershocks. I think a lot of what we might be able to look at that has been going on in the last 10,000 years, we may be able, to be able to understand as aftershocks in the wake of this major event that happened right after 13,000 years ago that in effect was so severe that it completely altered the natural, environmental, and ecological balance of the entire planet. Because obviously, think about this, where you guys are sitting right now, I mean, was buried under thousands of feet of ice, right? For, for thousands of years. Yeah, like a and mile, yeah, was so it I mean, a mile high or something, or a mile or two high? I mean, it's, that's crazy. Well, right where you were, it was probably not that thick, because actually where you guys are, was probably for a little while an ice-free corridor, right? Because you know you had basically two big ice sheets during the, in, in in North America. Almost meeting, last, almost meeting right in, right in Calgary, right in Alberta, I think, right? Yes, yes, yeah. pretty much meeting right there where you guys are. I mean, and and you know the the exact dating is not precisely worked out, but it's likely that the two ice sheets, the one that was over the the Canadian Rockies, which is called the Cordilleran. And the bigger one, which was centered on Hudson Bay, which is called the Laurentide Ice Sheet, those two ice sheets apparently did coalesce for a while and merged into a single uh, mass of ice. When that happened, where you guys are is probably between one and 2,000 feet thick. <clears throat> the, the, the most extreme period of the ice, the last ice age, was around sixteen to 22,000 years ago, somewhere right around in there. Um, when you go back to 25,000 years and back, actually, there was, there was a period 
in the middle of the presumed Great Ice Age, where it actually got almost as warm as it is today. And large parts of the ice receded back, and in some cases almost disappeared altogether. And then between 25 and 26,000 years ago, there was a climatic shift. The climate got colder, and the ice began to grow again really fast, um, in a geological sense, really fast. So that by 20,000 years ago, pretty much almost two-thirds of North America is buried under an ice cap that's bigger than the one that now covers the South Pole, if you can imagine that. And um, then around 15,000 years ago, the climate began, it started warming. And, and this is probably attributable to what are called the Milankovitch cycles, which, is the, which are three, um, it's changes in Earth, the relationship, the geometrical relationship between the Earth and the sun. And there are basically three things. It's the precession of the equinoxes, it's the obliquity of the ecliptic, and it's the eccentricity of the uh, orbit, all which change together the amount of solar radiation reaching the surface of the Earth. Now, those Milankovitch processes are very slow and cumulative over a long period of time. They do not explain the sudden um, shifts in climate that, that are now so well documented. But anyways, around 15,000 years ago, the climate began warming, which would be consistent with these Milankovitch forces at work. So the ice began to shrink back from its maximum, which was, say, 18,000 years ago was the, the absolute maximum. And that was the time when <clears throat> sea levels were 400 feet lower than they are now. And that is the time during which, if there was any level of human civilization, the most likely place that it would occur would be on the coastlines, because during the Ice Age, the, client, the type of environment that would be most conducive to the emergence of any kind of culture at all would have been along coastlines, basically. And it, uh, the, the culture that would have existed, if it did exist, and we can come back to this, would have most likely been maritime culture. But, of course, uh, anything that was going on culturally, um, 15,000 or 20,000 years ago that was on coastlines is now under 400 feet of ocean water. See, So to me, that's one of the reasons why I think it's utterly premature to, to wave the hand and dismiss the possibility that there could have been relatively sophisticated civilizations in the past whose uh, pretty much are completely lost to prehistory, or at least for the time being lost until we get better uh, able to um, investigate um, you know, levels of evidence that, that are inaccessible to us now, such as what we would find under 400 feet of seawater. Yeah, yeah. But the point yeah. is, is that, that um, you know, we had this major event that then happened right around 13,000 years ago. So you had this warming for about 2,000 years. The ice began to shrink back. This is probably then when the Laurentide and Cordilleran ice sheets opened up and would have created this ice-free corridor where, where you guys are located. Then around 13,000 years ago, there was a major sudden shift in climate where, you know, the Greenland ice cores preserve evidence of an 8 to 10 degree centigrade shift in climate in less than five years, um, which translates into, you know, 15 to 18 degrees Fahrenheit. So this is, this is an enormous uh, uh, change in 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 um, temperature um, that dwarfs utterly dwarfs anything that we are experiencing, you know, within the last century. And this is why I get so irritated when I hear people saying, 
over and over again, you know, well, the temperature's never raised, uh, gone up this high, this fast before. I know. I wanted well, to, I wanted you can to, only say that. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I wanted to mention. Well, yeah, so I basically. <laughs> go ahead. I'll just end by saying I do, when I hear somebody say that, I, I basically want to punch them. <laughs> because I want to, I want to say, look, if, if you can only say that because you have never studied paleoclimatology. You've never studied the history of climate on this earth, and so therefore you don't have any realistic framework for making a statement like that because it's patently untrue. Well, I wanted to get into that now, because what you're going to say well because I had this graph and I should have sent it to you before, and it was a, gla- a graph that was the global the global warm warmest we're sending around that made that made that sawtooth thing you're talking about from thirteen thousand years ago. And I don't know if it was, they probably started it from 10,000 years ago to, to, to leave out that increase that you were just talking about, but it showed from, you know, they made it look like it was a real slow up and down, up and down until the last, you know, 70 years or whatever, 60 years. And then it spikes way up. And I mean, I know you can manipulate data all, you know, all kinds of ways to make it look one way or the other, but it's, how are they getting away with like really construing it, it's so bad. I mean, it, it's, you know, I, because really you're talking about a sawtooth that went up and down through the medieval periods and all this stuff. I mean, there was pretty significant increases, not even counting the one at 13,000 years ago. So it's just amazing how they oh, can, yeah. they can throw this graphic that, 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 that makes it look completely different than, than what you're saying here. Well, that's, I'm, I'm going to guess since I haven't seen the graph, but it sounds exactly what you're describing is what I mentioned earlier, the infamous hockey stick, um, which is, which is basically coming out of one of the lead scientists of the IPCC. And it has been completely and thoroughly debunked um, because basically what they did was they exaggerated. I mean, it's, it's complicated. Uh, again, I wish maybe I might be able to send you some things that we could post up to explain it or we could save it for another podcast. But basically, for anybody who saw Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore's thing from, what, 2007 or when, when, whenever, 2003, I don't even remember when it was. But um, he shows a variation, a version of that hockey stick, as it's called, which essentially um, flattened out all of the changes that preceded the modern warming and then exaggerated the modern warming. Yeah. Uh, and, and in a nutshell, that's what it did. Um and it's very, it's very sophisticated. You know, it is. I, I will certainly give them, uh, grant them that. It's sophisticated the way they did it. By limiting the proxy evidence they used for pre-industrial um, estimates of temperature and by not rectifying the modern uh, temperature warming with such things as the urban heat island effect, the fact that um, Thousands of data collection stations in Siberia were closed down in the early 90s, which certainly biased the global temperature average to the warm side. I mean, there's many factors like that that you have to look at. The average person is just going to take what they're being spoon-fed by mainstream media, which is, oh, we're in this period of unprecedented warming. And this is why, you know, I've been saying, I've been getting attacked for years now for for daring to, to question the, the, the so-called consensus, right? Well, my, my retort to that is that I'll challenge them. Look, don't take my word for it. Take six months, you know, and, and study the literature. Study the actual research, you know. Not only the research that's coming out of the IPCC, 
which is basically a, a intergovernmental panel on climate change, is a, is a political consortium, first and foremost, <clears throat> that has brought scientists on board to, to basically confirm a preconceived conclusion that we are in this episode of unprecedented warmth uh, and so on. I mean, you can, you can go right into the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, read the charter for the IPCC, and right in the charter it <laughs> says... Your 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 mandate is to go out and prove that humans are warming the climate, and don't pay any attention to anything else. Don't pay attention to the natural factors that have been going on for thousands, for millennia, for millions of years on any scale you care to look at it. See, so yeah, that that is um, yeah, that's that's and, and interesting. If you compare that graph, I think that graph was was it in the it was in the second or third report that the ICPCC put out. And it's totally different than the same graph for the same period of time that was in the first report. Because in that graph, you see very clearly that there was a medieval warm period that was as warm as today. Uh, you see that there was a climatic optimum or hypsothermal between, uh, between like seven and 10,000 years ago, where it was most definitely warmer than now. So that's interesting in the fact is that once the planet finally freed itself from the grip of these massive glaciers and went into a period of, of uh, considerable warmth that lasted for somewhere between three and 4,000 years and then ended with a, a period that is called by the paleoclimatologists the neoglacial period, which is dated between 6,000 and 6,400 years ago, um, where the climate began to cool again. Um, and glaciers begin to grow. And the glaciers have oscillated back and forth. Um, they were at their very minimum during this climatic optimum, this, which has also been called the hypsothermal. And I think that the term got shifted from climatic optimum to hypsothermal because the term climatic optimum seems to imply that, <laughs> hey, optimum, that sounds like that's not so bad, right? Yeah. Hypsothermal, you don't quite get that. You don't get that. Oh, well, that might have been an optimal time. This period of time that came in the wake of the Great Ice Age was an interesting time because essentially in the aftermath of the Ice Age, you not only had major species loss, you know, that, that, that occurred concurrent with the major climate spasms that, that happened between roughly 11.6 and 13,000 years ago. It was, was an extreme time of transition on this planet. It's what's it's the period of time called the younger dryest, right? So going back to this, what I was talking about earlier, where the climate was warming, this kind of gradual warming that was taking place for a couple of thousand years, that got interrupted around twelve thousand nine hundred years ago. That was suddenly interrupted, and the and the climate of the planet shifted dramatically back into full glacial cold. The glaciers begin to grow again. Sea level rise paused because, you know, when the glaciers were melting, sea level was coming up. Sea level rise paused during this Younger Dryas period. And then at 11,600, the Younger Dryas came to a sudden and apparently catastrophic end. So the Younger Dryas itself was almost bookend by two catastrophes, the one at 12,009 and the one that at 11,600. The first one, the 12,900, was um, 
you basically, what you had was the gradual warming was suddenly interrupted by a spike of extreme warming that was almost immediately followed by a plunge into full glacial cold. And, and these changes took place literally over just a few years, right? So now during the Younger Dryas, you have this time of extreme cold again. And it was during the Younger Dryas that the great megafauna from the, disappeared from the planet. And we're talking about over 100 species of megafauna. Now, a megafauna is defined as, as an animal that's over 44 kilograms in body weight, or that's about 100 pounds, right? So what happened was that the, the, the megafaunal species of Earth, were the, the numbers, the species were literally just decimated during this younger, driest period. Now, and some of them to the point where the species never recovered and they went completely extinct. You know, obviously, um, you know, the species that most people might know about are woolly mammoths. But, um, you know, you had actually in North America, you had three species of mammoths. You had the mammothus imperator or imperial mammoth. You had the woolly mammoth and you had the Columbian mammoth. In addition to that, you had the mastodon. So they're all proboscideans, meaning they have basically trunks. Um, and they're all in that same family as modern elephants. But how many people actually stop and think there were four species of elephants native to North America? That's pretty weird when you think about yeah. it, you know, because we yeah. think elephants uh, Africa, you think of the, you know, you think of the Serengeti Plain with all the elephants, and you think of India, you know, with the elephants. Those are two distinct species of proboscideans there, the Indian elephant and the African elephant. America hosted four species of proboscideans at the end of the last ice age, or during the ice age. Those creatures are all gone now, and they all disappeared in, in effect in a geological eye blink. <laughs> and they, those mammoths, they, they, uh, cohabitated the world with, uh, you know, giant cave bears, um, gigantic ground sloths that were as big as, as modern-day elephants, um, you know, beavers that were as big as modern-day bears, bears that were almost the size of Volkswagen, you know, that, that stood six feet high at the shoulder and utterly dwarfed a modern grizzly, like the Arctotus simus, or giant short-faced bear, was a massive creature and considered to probably be the most dangerous predator of the Ice Age. Um, you had, in, in North America, you had camels, right? You had camels and were native to North America. In fact, it might be that camels started in North America, right? And these weren't camels like that. These were huge camels. These were, these were really monstrous creatures. And you had the saber-toothed cats, and you had the American Pleistocene lion that was almost as big as a horse. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. <clears throat> and these creatures all basically bit the dust at the same geological instant. And this was like during, within this period called the Younger Dryas. What else is interesting is now evidence is emerging that there was a human cultural collapse as well. And in North America, the terminal Ice Age culture is called the Clovis, after Clovis, New Mexico, um, where... There's an there's a archaeological site just outside of Clovis, New Mexico, called Blackwater Draw. Blackwater Draw was, back in the 1940s, it was the first place where there was unequivocal evidence of the association of humans with extinct megafauna. And in fact, one of the things that was found at this particular site in New Mexico was a mammoth skeleton with a Clovis spear point embedded in the ribcage. Okay, so... This showed a couple of things. Well, obviously, that humans and 
mammoths coexisted, and apparently humans hunted mammoths, right? So the, this Clovis culture was a culture that appeared suddenly after 14,000 years ago. They were the dominant culture. They left their, their, their toolkits and the artifacts of their, of, their, um, uh, of their society all over unglaciated North America. They're found in southeastern, down here where I live. They're found up near you guys. They're found in the Great Lakes. They're found in the southwest, like I said, in New Mexico and California. And what's mysterious about them was this, how, uh, how suddenly they appeared and just as suddenly disappeared. And what's interesting is that, the, that they disappeared pretty much right at the same time as the onset of the Younger Dryas. In fact, I think what I'm going to do is send you a graph um, that you can put up that shows um, some of the uh, evidence. Uh, it's a graph that shows quite dramatically the... Um, the, the collapse of population in North America. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, I have been we'll doing some interesting. Yeah, yeah, send that um, over, and Brody I'm will get gonna, it up for us. And does that does that correlate with uh, other um, collapses in like Gobekli Tepe and and maybe Easter Island and some other places around the globe as well? I can't speak about Easter Island. It appears to correlate with Gobekli Tepe, but I don't I don't know the. Um, I don't know how exact that is. I mean, you know, there's so many things I'm trying to see. Actually, I need to be three or four different people that can, <laughs> so that I can have time. And I haven't figured out how to do that yet. Um, well, I'm sure you could, you could probably rally a couple volunteers. We're, we're able to get some people to offer us some volunteer time once in a while. If they think they're, you know, for the good. Oh, really? good. Yeah, we've got some people help us out when we, you know, need a, help with certain things they just sort of reach out and contact i'm sure you know yeah we let's talk about that after let's 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 talk this weekend sure um let me see here okay i just said the address darren com in the two fields <laughs> <laughs> it what it didn't recognize it what maybe his mailbox is full because yeah, he doesn't see. read his emails actually maybe he should just send that to mine <laughs> Oh, okay. No, no, well, let me kidding. change this I'm out just... then. Oh, well, I've got Darren, D-A-R-R-E-N-G-R-I-M-E-R-I-C-A.com. It's at, at, Darren, at, at Grimerica.com? At Grimerica. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I had that in there. What happened to it? Okay, that's probably the problem. Now let's something. try it. Uh, let's see. The address Darren at Grimerica.com in the two field was not recognized. Hmm. Let's Weird. see. If the folks listening are uh, patient, I'm trying to send them an image so that you can see oh, yeah, some they, of this they will stuff be. we're talking about. They're the best. best they will be? Ever. Oh, okay. yeah, they're super patient. They've all been thoroughly vetted? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Brody, can you change the camera so I can take oh. my shirt off? <laughs> For a second, not not okay, to me. Let me see. D A R R E N. Yeah, at GryAmerica.com. Yeah, GryAmerica.com. G R I M E R I C A. Yeah. Yeah. Com. Geez, I wonder. If, um, here, I'm going to send Darren a little test here too, just to make sure that something's not messed up. <clears throat> you guys are just saying my email. 
Which oh, is it just sent. Over and over. It just sent. It might have been too big. Maybe Did it send? Well. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got it. It came through. Okay, cool. There's only two there. I can actually send some more. But, yeah, the graph of the Clovis artifacts, this is um, just shows what we're talking This is just one uh, piece of evidence. There's multiple pieces of evidence, but this one is, is pretty dramatic. Um, and this is, a, like it says, it's a graph depicting the distribution of total known Clovis artifacts. Um, and you see that it suddenly drops from almost 500 um that they that they're finding at the layers down to almost nothing. Uh, so there was a decline in quarry usage greater than ninety nine percent that persisted for approximately six hundred years, and that drop is right at twelve thousand nine hundred years, right at the onset of the um, younger dry. Okay, we got it on the screen now. Oh wow, that's yeah, that looks like a significant drop. Yeah, you could drag that right over everything for a second, Brody. It's okay. Yeah, pull it all over. Pull it right over my face. Yeah, so you see there that, that left the y-axis there where it says number of artifacts. So they're going along and you're finding, basically you're going along into these different horizons. You're finding all these artifacts over decades and decades and decades. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's no artifacts. They're gone. Like, you know, in other words, you're looking at the things that, you know, when, when, when a, a, a culture, a hunter-gatherer culture, is occupying a site for extended period of time, they will leave tremendous amounts of evidence that, that they were there. You know, in this case, what is, this was a study of quarries where they were um, extracting the stone that they were using to make their tools and their spear points out of, right? So you could see that for decades and decades and decades, they're there for, for 200, 300 years, quarrying this stone, and then, boom, all of a sudden, it's, the quarry is abandoned. So this is just one, this is one graph. I mean, I could actually send you about a half a dozen more graphs uh, of different types of evidence to show that basically cultural activity, you know, ceased for a period of anywhere from three or 400 up to 800 years in the wake of the Younger Dryas. The stuff that I've been actually researching in the last couple of weeks is I'm looking for evidence from other places around the world to try to understand how extensive this interruption was. And I've got, uh, now there's studies that are coming out of Japan that show that there was major cultural disruption there with the onset of the Younger Dryas. I've got studies out of a study uh, that I've been reading the last week out of Belgium. I've got one out of the uh, Eastern Mediterranean. Um, so it's beginning to show up. And see, here's the thing is that for a long time, you know, the archaeologists who were looking at these sites were not necessarily looking for, like, a cultural hiatus. They weren't looking for something that showed that, oh. And, and well, they, they, didn't, did, they didn't even think it went that really, far back. I mean, they weren't even looking. They were all probably thinking that it only goes back four or 5,000 years, that they weren't even expecting to see something, you know, evidence, like, go yeah, back. Yeah, well, even the ones or, going back in... in even the ones going back into the old Stone Age, which was what you would call the Paleolithic, right? The Paleolithic goes back tens of thousands of years and essentially ended, you know, the Paleolithic would be an archaeological term rather than a geological term. And it refers to Paleo is old, Lithic means stone, so that's the old Stone Age. The end of this is now called the Epi Epipaleolithic, meaning it comes at the, in, the, in the stratigraphic column, it comes right at the top. 
this was the period of transition, and it was during this epipaleolithic that these cultures apparently disappeared or collapsed or were big time um, interrupted. What do you think the loss percentage was was like of people? Oh, I think, well, consider this. You figure that half of the species of megafauna around the entire planet, the loss was so extreme that the species went extinct. Now, events that would cause the extinction of half of the planet's large mammals are not going to wipe out half those mammals and leave the other half completely unscathed. But if you think, you see, uh, the, uh, the numbers, the absolute numbers of a given species can be reduced way, way down, and the species can recover quite rapidly. I mean, think about the American bison, that there were millions of, Amer- of, of bison roaming the prairies, you know, from, from Texas up to where you guys are, um, you know, prior to the arrival of, of the Europeans, right? So now, at the turn of the 20th century, the numbers of bison in North America was down literally to several hundred. And of course, now you can go into the supermarket and buy bison burger, right? Now, if you were looking back 10,000 years from now, you could easily miss the fact that the American bison had become almost completely extinct. You could completely miss it. So, so in other words, the animals that did survive, their numbers could have been reduced tremendously but then they would have recovered um, in the aftermath because, for one thing, you got to bear in mind that this basically was a decapitation of the food chain. You had the, the biggest species at the top of the food chain are the ones that went down. And what that clearly indicates is that there was major habitat loss because, for one thing, the larger species require more habitat. They require more food. Um, if there's a collapse in the food chain, the top of the food chain is going to be what's affected first. Um, the smaller animals that, that need less food, that um, reproduce much faster, you know, when you have a, a, an elephant, you know, what, what is the gestation time for an elephant? And it's almost two years, isn't it? And then the time to bring uh, the newborn up to where it can survive independently is is much, much longer, obviously, for the, for the larger species than the smaller species. So what I'm getting at with this is that human population numbers could have crashed very, very severely. Um, and the evidence that I'm looking at is suggesting that that, that actually did happen um, and then could have recovered fairly quickly. That's, that's the point. So that if we're looking back, you know, at what happened 13,000 years ago, we we could easily miss the fact that the population of of, of humans around the Earth may have have declined uh, severely. And what this graph you're looking at here, this graph is, is a study of these quarries that were were actively being quarried for their stone. Right. Well, then all of a sudden, boom, activity is gone. Is why is that? Did the people move away? Well, see, that's been one of the assumptions all along by archaeologists who have seen some of this. Well, they were here, but they must have packed up and gone somewhere else. But then you look somewhere else and you see the same damn thing happening, right? What it really is suggesting is most likely, no, they didn't get up and move somewhere else. They were all killed off. They died, you know. And so basically that's why, you know, there were there were sites of cultural activity for centuries and then suddenly that uh, activity 
ceased so does overnight. That, does that correlate and, to your firestorm uh, scientific evidence then, and then also the cometary impact? Is, is that fitting all together? Oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the timing, you, you know, the, yeah, the timing on this is almost perfect. So, yeah, the, the, the date, the other picture I sent you, uh, if you look at that and go ahead and put that up, yep. that's a picture of nano diamonds, right? Now, in the, uh, in the sites that, um, uh, in fact, you could do this. Um, if, if you've got access to the Internet, pull up the Murray Springs um, paleontological site. You probably just put in Murray Springs, and it'll bring up... I'll do it on my end here, and I'll tell you what we're looking for. And you, you could go ahead and, and, and post this up for folks. Um, Murray Springs was a Clovis site. Um, I'll tell you. Murray Springs. Murray, yeah, Murray Springs Clovis site. Uh, go to images. And let's see. Ah, now in mine, I've got, you got it open? Yep. I'm on Bing. Okay, so we'll I don't know if you're changes. looking. Are, are, you, are, you, are you, did you Google it? Are I you on Google? It. I binged it, okay. but what do you got? What am I looking at? I think it's got to be pretty close. Okay, well, uh, the thing I'm looking at is the outcrop where you can see the black mat. Is that like the different levels of soil where you can see there's like a black mat layer of soil? Yes. Okay, yes. perfect. Yep. That's what you're looking for. That's in fact, right. if you put in uh, Murray Springs Clovisite, just add to that black mat. And that'll probably narrow, narrow down your search for you. That's what I'm doing. I'm just doing black mat. Mat with two teeth. Yeah, now... Now comes up the first picture here, and I can see there are several pictures where you can see very clearly a difference in soil types, and wow. it's separated by this black layer. You yeah. see that? Yeah, that's quite significant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm, that, that's the 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 now fairly famous black mat layer, which archaeologists were finding at decades ago. Um, and here's what they were what they were noticing is that below that layer is where they were finding Clovis artifacts, but not above it. And then below that layer, the paleontologists were finding the remains of the extinct megafauna, but not above it. So this black mat layer has kind of been known as a, as a um, you know, as a horizon. It's, it's a, 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 a chronostratigraphic marker, if you want to use the term for it, um, that basically is dated to precisely the onset of the Younger Dryas, 12,900 years ago. Right now, the reason it's black is because there's so much carbon in it, and that's the evidence from fires. But then, oh, back in the 2000s, uh, Richard Firestone and a team at Berkeley, Livermore, Lawrence Livermore, and others co-authored a paper where they went in and they took a look at that, a closer look at that black matte layer, and at the base of the black matte layer is where they found the, the nano diamonds. And I've sent a picture of these nano diamonds that are ex they're extremely small, but there are billions, probably trillions of them. Uh, that's that's the, the ones with the. Uh, is that the same picture that has the little pyramids underneath it? Yes, yeah, those star little pyramids are yeah, yeah. yeah. So above that are the nano diamonds. Yeah. 
Yeah, above you see uh, Abu Haraya, which is in Syria. Um, let's see, Santa Mara, which is um, off of uh, California. And then Lindenmeyer, which I believe was in Germany. So basically, you're saying that everywhere they looked at this particular horizon, they found these nanodiamonds. Now, nanodiamonds only form under extremely, just under extreme circumstances of heat and pressure. In fact, where nanodiamonds have been found before is in association with cosmic impacts. Uh, for example, nanodiamonds, very similar to what you're seeing right here, have been found in association with the Cretaceous tertiary impact of 66 million years ago that exterminated the dinosaurs, right? Well, here they're being found and dated to this black mat layer and dated to, you know, 12,900 years ago. Um, and the distribution of these nanodiamonds, you know, so far everywhere they've looked, we don't know if it's global in extent, but so far everywhere they have looked from North America to Europe to the Middle East, they're showing up. And so they've been found naturally in association with uh, impact events. They've been found in meteorites, and they've been found, they've been produced during nuclear weapons tests. Oh. So nuclear weapons tests have provided the type of extreme heat and pressure necessary to create these extremely small microscopic diamonds. How, how small are um, we talking about? Like a couple thou in, in, well, in let me, length? Or? Yeah, you look right here on the slide, you'll see the, the, the ones in Syria, they're 40 nanometers. Um, 25 nanometers, 30 nanometers. Yeah, they're, they're little. What's that they're in, very little. What's that in um, the thousands of an inch? Is that like four or five thou, thousandths of an inch? I can't remember. Well, you 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 wouldn't you wouldn't look at it in uh, in terms of inches. You'd look at it in terms of of um, meters. Uh, well, nanometers. Most, most of the world would, but <laughs> you got you guys are metric up there, yeah. right? That's right. Yeah, we're, we're hybrid. We're half and half. Well, we're yeah, we're real. Okay, you know we're we're both. Yeah. Okay, a meter is thirty nine point thirty seven inches. Right, it's a little over a foot. A nanometer is a billionth of a meter. Yeah. So you line up a billion nanometers, it's going to be a meter. Wow. If that gives you any indication. It's not very big. You're not going to see it with the naked eye. You're going to have to go to a microscope. So, yeah, so that's like take a, a billionth of a meter would be a millionth, a, a of, a millionth, a millionth of a millimeter. A millionth of a centimeter. Yeah. No, a thousandth, a millionth of a millimeter. Yeah. Well, a centimeter small. is one hundredth of a meter. A millimeter is a thousandth. So basically, yeah. it's one millionth of a millimeter. So yeah, it's not very big. <laughs> That's like uh, no, nah, I won't go there. <laughs> Too easy. Oh, okay. Too easy. So, so this this will end up corresponding with with the cultural collapses all over the world, probably. Uh, yes, apparently. But, you know, just like, you know, certain species survived, you know, um, ecologists will look at species, um, you know, increasing in numbers, then decreasing in numbers. Um, there's a certain periodicity to a lot of species, you know, that I remember as a kid, what was it? I think it was 14, there was a, I think it was a seven-year frog cycle up in Minnesota. And every, I think it was every seven years, every seven years, 
I don't, there'd be just millions of frogs everywhere. There were so many frogs. I remember that the road in front of our house looked like, instead of asphalt paving, it was frog, dried frog carcass paving. Because there were so many frogs everywhere. That, and then it would be like that for one year, and then I guess they would just overwhelm the, the available um, food supply or, or something. And, you know, rabbits will do the same thing, right? Um, so... Basically, I don't remember where I was going with this. <laughs> well, no, the cycle, the cycle of the uh, the destruction of the collapses of the cultural collapses around that around that same time. Yes, yes. So, yeah, the cultural collapse. I mean, see, that's it. All of these things are basically converging upon this same uh, period between twelve thousand eight hundred and thirteen thousand years ago. So, you've got the megafaunal extinction. You've got massive climate. Uh, changes recorded in in ice cores from Greenland, from Antarctica. You have, um, you know, the megafaunal, the the species loss, the cultural collapse of the Clovis. And then in many cases, you have 500 to 800-year hiatus. And then you begin to see cultural activity again. And and the, the new cultural activity is distinct from the Clovis, so distinct that it's been given a different name in North America. It's called the Folsom culture. And I'm not, again, I'm not an archaeologist, but even in my untrained eye, I can tell the difference between a Clovis point and a Folsom point, right? Because they're using different types of stone, different types of uh, napping and, and, and flinting methods. And, you know, a, a trained archaeologist who's, who's studying this can, can quickly discern the difference. Um, so you had this hiatus, you had this gap in the archaeological record, and then <clears throat> you see, begin to see activity again after typically 500, 800 years later. Oh, oh, I know where I was going with this thing. The idea of a refugium, that is that the species that survive, they may get decimated to a large extent, but if a small group of those of, of individuals can survive somewhere, and then after these environmental changes have, have calmed down and things have kind of gotten back to a semblance of normality, they can begin reproducing again, see? And then even like, that was one of the things when I went to uh, investigate the aftermath of the Mount St. Helens eruption, because here was a good example where you had something like 250 square miles that were just utterly decimated, turned into a, a lunar landscape in the aftermath of the Mount St. Helens eruption, right? So... It's interesting to me, I think it was uh, two years ago, three years ago, I, I, I went there um, with my friend and colleague, Brad Young, and well, which you guys knew, you know, Brad, we yep. were, um, yep. you, you sure do, we were on, on uh, yeah, you sure do. So um, anyways, we uh, we went there to see, to sort of to see what, how the recovery had, had gone after whatever, 28 years or, or let's see, yeah, whatever it had been. And, and here was a good example of where you'll see for whatever reason, just the fluke of the way these things transpire, you have this little pocket where some one plant or a couple of plants survive or a few animals survive, right? What happens then is in the aftermath of a catastrophe, you basically, you've got lots of territory, but you don't have competition for space, right? Mm. So that the animals that do survive can proliferate rapidly into this, vacated zone, see, without competition. And, and we see that in the aftermath of the Younger Dryas catastrophe, that large areas of the Earth's pop, uh, areas were depopulated. 
So the survivors, the, the, the creatures that survived, they were able to move into these vacated habitats and basically set up housekeeping and, and thrive because uh, their competitor species are not there. And like I was saying earlier, the, 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 the food chain was essentially decapitated where all of the biggest animals that would have been right at the top of the food chain were the ones that basically bit the dust which I think is, is clearly a function of the fact that they require more space and more time to uh, propagate the species. I think Krakato- And the smaller Krak- Sorry, I think Krakatoa, Krakatoa was a great example of that. It, the mountain blew off, I think it was Krakatoa, that blew off right into the sea, basically destroyed itself. And then as the, as the volcanic stuff started coming up and it started um, breaching the water, the island just started forming almost instantly with, with plants and bird life and animal yeah. life. Like within, yeah. you know, you could almost watch it happen from, from, yeah. no, from, fact, noth- from nothing to a complete uh, little, little ecosystem on an island, just like that. Yeah. What, what the, what the natural record seems to show is that nature has almost miraculous recuperative uh, capabilities. Um, and so, yeah, and we see that in the aftermath. Well, think about that. All of Canada was buried under ice. Yeah. So when you suddenly remove that ice, what's there? Nothing, right? So within a couple of thousand years, you've got forests now reaching from the Atlantic to the Pacific and all the way up to the tundra zone from the northern United States. Um, nature, and see, that was the thing about this period. I I refer to it as the goddess period because it was during this period from like seven to 10,000 years ago that I was talking about earlier, the hypsothermal, the climatic optimum. It was almost like in the aftermath of these severe climatic changes, the, the global climate became very benign for about 3,000 years. It was in many places considerably warmer than it is now. Sea levels in some places might have been a meter or two higher than now. Um, a lot of this is controversial, but I think the weight of the evidence is showing that, yeah, it was a time of, of global warmth, warmer than now, sea levels were high, and it was a time of proliferation, um, where basically surviving species, including humans, would have had very little competitive, uh, you know, very little competition for uh, the available resources, hmm. which have, have rapidly recovered, Right. So there's the work of Maria Gabudis, which is a, uh, an anthropologist who studied this early Neolithic period, uh, roughly from six to 10,000 years ago. She has documented that you can't find, it's very difficult to find evidence of war. And that took um, us right into agriculture, looked, right? Didn't it? Yeah, the shift into agriculture came right in the aftermath of the Younger Dryas. Yeah. So the assumption is, as pre-Younger Dryas, it was pretty much hunter-gatherers, mostly. After the Younger Dryas, we see this shift into agriculture, and, and that is an interesting study in itself, why the shift to agriculture would have followed in the wake of, this, of these great catastrophes. But for about 3,000 years, you know, this would have been, you know, if you're a student of the Bible, I kind of think this is sort of almost a metaphor for the Garden of Eden-like existence. Um, because of the fact that the growing season in the Northern Hemisphere was up to four to six weeks longer during the hypsothermal, you had, uh, what, a thousand feet higher altitude that you could actually conduct farming and so on. Um, 
and there was very little competition for space or resources. So there would have been, see, so in the aftermath of a catastrophe, and what it begins to look like is that in the aftermath of the Younger Dryas catastrophes, you had pockets of survivors, isolated pockets of survivors here and there around the world, and they basically begin to um, proliferate, they begin to to propagate the numbers and begin to slowly at first, but then then at an increasing pace, begin to um, you know increase their population density, and then what happens is you've got say three thousand years there. This would have been the, the period, if to use a biblical metaphor, uh, beef being fruitful and multiplying. If you have your population numbers reduced to potentially, and I don't think this is unrealistic, potentially near extinction levels. One of the most important things you can do is to have lots of babies, right? Yeah, you get pretty horny when the, when you're the last one on Earth. Yeah, that's right. Sure. Well, so this would have been a time when basically, yeah, basically eat, drink, have lots of sex, be merry. Climate's warm. There's lots of food. There's lots of small game everywhere because the big predators, basically most of these big predators are gone. So now you've got the small game everywhere which is easy to hunt. Um, the, the rivers and streams have recovered. Um, they're loaded with fish. Um, you know, once you hit about between uh, about 7,000 years ago, sea levels begin stabilizing more or less around the world. So now you could, you could now begin to reestablish communities that would be exploiting shallow marine ecologies. Um, so, yeah, and, and with the longer growing season, um, it really was a time where, you could have almost like reached out your hand and pulled the fruit off the tree. It, it would have been a very Eden-like existence, right? Now, of course, you know, there were interruptions to that for sure, and it wasn't equally everywhere like that. But, but in a lot of cases, it's apparent that it was really quite an idyllic life. Um, and it was during this period, I call it the goddess period, because there were so many of these um, goddess effigies that were being carved, these big rotund goddess effigies where they're pregnant most of the time. I don't know if you've seen any of these. Um, on, if you go to my um, the Sacred Geometry International website, I've got a series of three or four essays or articles up there about this particular period, and it's with illustrations and all of that, so you can see pictures of what I'm talking about, the, these goddess effigies, which were actually... Um, representative of the earth itself. And so, in effect, what I think you have happening is the emergence of a religion very earth-oriented, right? Because the earth has now become a very benign, almost nurturing kind of place for these, uh, for these groups to recover in the aftermath of these catastrophes. What should we search on but your then, site to get there? Oh, let's see. Um, if you're going to the, you're at the Sacred Geometry International yeah. site? Yeah. Oh, uh, let's see here. I can tell you in a second. Um, I should have a link right here. Um, got it right here. Um, the SGI blog? Yeah, okay, I'm getting it up here. Let's see here. If you go to uh, the drop-down menu, second from the left where it says media, Yeah. drop down to articles, 
let's see. Is that where it is? Uh, well, let's see. It might be under Sangreal, the Holy Grail. Is that where it ended up? Let's see. I'll, here. I'll, check, that. I'll check that out now. And then uh, they got the... I don't think so. Okay, well, that's some damn interesting stuff. Because um, we were talking earlier about the that 536 to 544 AD, and that brings us into the um, into the uh, the Holy Grail stories. Uh, let's see. I thought it was under the articles. Let's see. FSGI blog presentations. New archive photo die. Um. I don't remember these uh, goddess things from last couple times. Hey, Darren, do you remember? No. <clears throat> Did we talk about that at all? No, no. It's interesting. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't remember that. No, I, I don't think we necessarily did. But what I was getting at, and I can probably find this before um, the show is over. Um, what I was getting at was that this came to an end. I mentioned earlier uh, the onset of the neoglacial between 6,000 and 6,400 years ago. Mm-hmm. The climate went through a cooling, and as a result, uh, growing season contracted. The altitude at which farming could be conducted dropped a thousand feet or so. So, if you have, if you think now, between say 10,000 and 6,500 years ago, you've got optimum conditions for human population expansion, right? And this is what we see is that human population is expanding into these vacated habitats, right? Um, there's very little evidence of conflict, as, as Maria Gimbutas has, has documented. You know, in other words, you see the, 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 the camps where people were living. There's no evidence of fortifications, right? You don't see evidence of the, the instruments of war that would have been used um, you know, in, in battles and that kind of thing. Um, about 6,500 6, years ago, this shifted. The climate cooled. Growing seasons contracted. You had several apparently cold years where you had this similar thing happen where there would have been, um, you know, the, uh, farming uh, or, or agricultural collapses because there's now, you know, a lot of agriculture going on. Uh, you know, so you have these sedentary communities. Well, then what happens is the climate changes, the environmental change, environment changes, and it disrupts these patterns of human settlement that have been basically in place for several thousand years. And it's this disruption, this displacement that now in the wake of that comes the evidence of, of warfare and conflict. So right after this cooling, you begin to see uh, human encampments are now surrounded by palisades, uh, fortifications, moats, things like that. You see um, what looks like weapons that were, you know, that have traces of human blood on them that look like there were conflict. The, the famous ice man that was found up in um, the Alps, if you've heard about him, um, he was probably a, a, a victim. <laughs> Wim Hof, no, not Wim Hof. I'm talking about a guy that's, you know, almost 6,000 years old. Oh, I, that ice man. Not, okay, yeah, I got you. Hof is not that old, is he? He's no. getting there. He doesn't go back to the late Neolithic, as far as I know. Graham does. I'm talking, I'm talking about, his name is Ozzy. They call him Ozzy, um, O-Z-Z-I. 
Um, and he was found in a, in a ravine up in the Alps, and he probably succumbed to a, he was probably killed. Um, the story looks like it could have been, you know, a, um, some kind of a conflict that was going on because you had one displaced group moving into an area where there was already a settled, uh, a settled uh, social group. And then you had, uh, in the wake of that, you had conflict showing up. Huh. And this is kind of the end of the goddess era. And, and it's interesting that when you go back to the old, old uh, Ice Age times, you see a lot of cultures seem to be worshiping sky gods. And then when you come to the, to the climatic optimum, they seem to be worshiping earth gods. Then they start worshiping wrathful sky gods again in the wake of the neoglacial, um, which suggests something to me, which suggests the possibility that there's a bigger link between what's going on out there in space and what's going on down here below in terra firma than has been uh, recognized up until recently. And yeah. I think that's one of the part of the big shift that we're in now is recognizing that, yeah, <laughs> we're part of uh, this planet is part of a much bigger ecosystem. Um, and it's not a closed system. It's, yeah. it's open on multiple levels. And, and we don't have what's control going on out there. Not yet anyway. Yeah. So I wanted to, that kind of leads into the, my, the next question I've been dying to ask you, but uh, just so everybody knows your website, I mean, we don't really, we haven't really plugged it that much in the past, but it's full of awesome articles and information. And the, and the goddess thing is part of your uh, cycles of global change, part three, four, and five. So they can search oh, okay. it, they can search it that way, or it's, it's in that whole series that you did uh, cycles of global change. So we got some pictures. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we got some pictures right now. Well, He's I searched it. I actually, I just searched goddess on your website. There's a search bar down on the, on the right hand side, halfway down. And, uh, we got the pictures on the, on the YouTube right now for people. It's uh, interesting. It oh, does, it does, very cool. it does look like a time of, of, um, a time of, uh, lots of, uh, what should I, how should I say? Um, lots of food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, hey, there we go. There we go. Like yeah, and if I'm looking down, you go around. down the third one, you'll see um, the books by uh, Gimbutas there. You'll see some of these goddess effigies that I was talking about, big corpulent, you know. Um, yeah, so yeah, there we go. There we go. So, And then there's a lot of other stuff there, too, So the, I'm seeing. What I wanted to, what I wanted to ask you about is if, if we took that... that uh, Oh, that time where the cometary impact happened and all the, the firestorms. And if we sort of really backed off a bit and looked at it through a real high, higher lens in a, a longer cycle, do we see any pattern going back like every 26,000 years or 13,000 years or of, of this type of impact or this type of change? I mean, maybe not even at that scale, but even at just a minor scale. Like, is there a cycle that goes back oh. millions of years? I would say that appears to be yes. Um, more extensive documentation, of course, is necessary to make a really convincing case. But you can do this. You can go back and you can say the, the beginning of what is called the late Wisconsin. Uh, the Wisconsin Ice Age in North America goes back, mm, depending on which date you use, 110,000 years, let's say. right? Well, there were several phases within that Wisconsin Ice Age. And I mentioned earlier that there was a period of time where the glaciers almost disappeared. 
within that 100,000 years, maybe even a couple of times where the glaciers almost disappeared. Sea levels came back up. Now, it is interesting that if you begin to look at the shift from uh, the last relatively warm period in North America into the final phase of the of the Wisconsin Ice Age, it occurred right at 26,000 years ago, which is one processional cycle. Oh, wow. And that gets into the, into the idea that, um, you know, this idea of the great year, which was so critical to many of the eschatological ideas of ancient cultures, the idea that there is this cyclicity to nature, and that somehow the, the clock that showed the tempo of this periodicity was the, was the, um, the great year. Um, probably the seminal work addressing that was Hamlet's Mill, which came out in 1969 by um, Hertha, Hertha von Deschend and um, who the other author will come to me, um, which basically was a, 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 an exhaustive documentation of this idea that the ancient peoples around the world had this model of cyclical change, and it was based upon astronomical considerations, and it was ultimately derived from the motion of the vernal equinox through the 12 constellations of the zodiacal uh, wheel. And so this is where we have inherited this idea of the ages of the world when we're talking about the age of Pisces and transitioning into the age of Aquarius, which has become like this new age cliche. So, you know, the danger is bringing up, even bringing up such a thing and talking about the age of Aquarius, you know, the hardcore are going to go, they're going, oh, he's one of these new agers, you know, who believes in astrology. You know, I've, I've, listen, listen, I've actually gotten that, right? People dismissing me, say, oh, yeah, he believes in astrology, so he's full of shit, you know, don't look at anything else he has to say. Um, but the point is, is that astrology to the ancient world was not astrology that we're basically think of today. It was a belief that, yes, indeed, things that happen in the cosmos affect life down here on Earth. And that is now a really solid idea. Now, you can go into all kinds of weird, you know, etheric places with that, and, and the New Age groups do tend to do that for sure. But you, you've got to understand that this model is basically derived from very um, sophisticated and precise observations of celestial motion that would have had to have occurred over many generations, because when you're looking at the vernal equinox moving through the, sci- the, the, sci- uh, the constellations of the zodiac, you're looking at something that requires 72 years to move just one degree. Now, for anybody listening, if you, if you want to try to get some handle on the, 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 the scale that we're talking about here, the moon, the full moon disk, is about 30 arc minutes across its face. That is 30 minutes of arc. So if you were able to take two lunar disks, full moon disks, place them side by side, tangent to each other, the distance across the two lunar faces would be one degree, right? Give or take a few minutes, but one degree, right? That's how far the vernal equinox transits from east to west um, during 72 years. Hmm. So most people are not going to notice that unless you have 
a group of astronomic, astronomically oriented individuals that make it their business to track that motion. And it's clear from the evidence and the kind of evidence that was amassed in Hamlet's Mill and other works that, yeah, they were doing that. You know, they had traditions really all over the world where you had priesthoods, if you want to call them that, astronomers, if you prefer to call them that, whose job it was was to monitor celestial motion and be able to track that motion with a high degree of accuracy. This is confirmed abundantly over and over and over again from virtually every ancient culture that has left uh, traces of its existence on the surface of the planet, um, that they were keenly interested in what was going on in the heavens. And I think the reason for that is obvious, because there are times when the activity in the heavens appears to go uh, increased by orders of magnitude over the kind of things we've experienced in recent times. I even go so far as to say this. Um, I think the Ice Ages were brought on by changes in the cosmic environment. I think the termination of the Ice Ages were brought about by changes in the cosmic environment. The mass extinction episodes in the history of, the, of life on Earth have been brought about by changes in the cosmic environment. And the collapse of civilizations likewise do to some extent, if not a large extent, to changes in the cosmic environment. And I think that our ancestors all over the world who are, who are methodically and exhaustively documenting cosmic motion were keenly aware of this, that, that the, the balance of, of nature could be altered dramatically by shifts in what was going out there in the, on, in the sky. And what has happened is that when... The cosmos has been relatively quiet. Civilization has been able to prosper. When the cosmos gets active again, when, when things begin to happen in the sky, when there are asteroids and comets and fireballs and, and cosmic dust and, and all of the consequences of these things, when the sky becomes active again, it has massive implications for the stability of human populations and human culture on Earth. And this is one of the lessons that has come down to us. From, from our ancestors, from archaic times. And we have been basically built this civilization that, that is now becoming a global civilization during a time of relatively calm and quiet cosmos, which could be subject to change at any time. And I don't know how many people listening to this pay attention to this kind of thing, but in the last, say, 10 to 20 years, we are constantly having things debris from space fly by the Earth. We're finding out that unlike the, 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 the models of, of cosmic space 50 or 100 years ago, where we assumed that not much was out there, we now realize that space, near-Earth space, is abundantly uh, inhabited by a whole uh, host of, of cosmic beasts. And even now as we speak, there's one coming in, I think, this weekend that's going to make a close flyby. Every one of these things is like warning shots across the bow, telling people down here below on Earth that, listen, you need to get your head up out of the mud and all of this superficiality and triviality yep. and completely meaningless shit that everybody is so concerned with and realize that there's a much bigger thing going on here. And if we don't pay attention to it, well, I think that we're going to end up going the same route as some of our ancestors did when, when cultures came to a sudden and violent collapse because the environment changed. And this is why I'm, I get so disturbed by this whole global warming thing. It's yep. because not because 
I'm certainly, yes, absolutely the climate has warmed in the last 150 years. But half of that warming occurred before we were even putting carbon dioxide to any significant degree into the atmosphere. You've got to explain that warming, or you can't tell me you've got this, the warming that's going on right now, all figured out. And the, the idea that carbon dioxide, which is a life-giving trace gas, which, which helps plants to proliferate very healthy, which improves the robustness of crops, of agriculture, um, that this is such a horrible thing, and, and our complete focus has to be on that, right? Well, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be looking at that. Of course we should. And we absolutely want to understand the human or anthropogenic effects on climate, exactly. on environment, on Exactly. People aren't aren't people aren't disagreeing with that on this side. The people that are skeptical of the global warming thing are not dogmatic enough to not say that and, and, and disagree with that. It just drives me nuts. Instead we're focusing on it's affecting us in 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 uh like in our personal lives. We're being taxed now. We have carbon tax now here. I mean I'm paying carbon tax because of this whole global warming thing. And then now you know, all they want to do is start talking about, uh, you know, flying uh, stratospheric aerosol injections in the sky and that they have the scientific uh, way to stop global warming by, you know, spraying shit in our skies to stop the fucking sun from hitting the earth. Like, can you believe it's getting to that point where they're saying that geoengineering is going to solve this fucking made up problem? It's unbelievable. Yeah, made up problem. That's exactly what it is. And, and you know, I it, that's why I get so exasperated. And you know, since I've been coming out kind of publicly in the last five or six years, I know in the aftermath of the first Joe Rogan podcast I did, boy, I got all kinds of heat from people, you know, basically saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm being paid off by the fossil fuel <laughs> companies. That it had to be one of the most ridiculous, laughable things that people were posting, that I was getting paid off by the, uh, you, know, you know, or that, you know, and the name calling, you know, I'm, oh, I'm just another climate denialist, which I think which is so utterly absurd, you know, and think about the things we've been talking about. We could talk for days and days and days where we talk about nothing but climate change and yeah. paleoclimatic yeah. change, right? So here I am talking over and over and over again about climate change, and then you have these people coming and saying, I'm a climate change denier. Oh, it's unbelievable. And it's always the same. They They basically have no evidence to bring to the discussion. They're just regurgitating what they've been spoon-fed. Yep. And, you know, it, it's it's frustrating. It's, been, it's falling apart, though. I mean, it's it's falling well, apart. I, I mean, look is. at look at what's happened, right? The U.S. has pulled out of the, of the Paris bullshit. I mean, and people like yourself and other scientists are coming forward, even though some of them would say that they would never do that again, like Ball, like Ball Timothy Ball, I think his name is. He, he said, like, no, I'm, yeah, I, if I had a choice, I would never do that again because he's been so, you know, his family's been threatened. I mean, the... The um, the vitriol from the other side of this is unbelievable, which makes you wonder again if you have to if you have to hate and 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 attack the other side so bad, you know there's there's a, there's a problem with that. I mean, if you can't even accept the other side's argument or even listen to it, there's a there's a problem with that. Wow, absolutely. And again, I think it's important that we understand all of the things that we're doing to the climate and the environment. I'm not in any way saying. We shouldn't be studying those effects. The problem is it, the whole thing has been politicized. Yeah. And, and it's, become, it's now dominated by politics rather than science. And there's huge amounts of money tied up with this. You know, um, 
in one of the articles that um, that's on on the Sacred Geometry website, I go into pretty great detail about uh, you know the money trail, and I also go compare the amount of money that the skeptical side has gotten compared to the side that the pro-global warming side has gotten, and it, it, it's not even comparable. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's laughable, yeah. and it's documented. I've got it all documented with the sources. People can go. They can, they can look up those sources for themselves and do the research, or they can sit back and just open their mouths and, and, and be spoon-fed this pre-digested pablum that's being handed out as scientific truth. And if that's the route they want to go, fine, you know, do that. But, you know, how you can live with yourself with any degree of honor, I don't know. But, you know, you've got to question everything. And when somebody comes out and says, oh, it's a now a scientific consensus, which is complete bullshit, that's a made-up, that 97%, let me, let me put this, say this, unequivocally, the 97% consensus is total bullshit. Complete bullshit. And anybody who completely regurgitates that, I got to say, is a completely uneducated fool who has not done any independent research at all, or they would know that it is complete bullshit. Yep. Have you heard? Thank the, you for letting me get that off. No my problem. Have you Have you heard the latest from Al Gore? Apparently, I mean, I haven't looked into the details of this, but bizarre. He's talking about in Dubai at this conference about bizarre weather phenomena such as flying rivers and rain bombs are just some of the recent effects of climate change. You know, he's saying basically that you know he's describing flying or atmosphere rivers as long as streams of rain-bearing clouds that carry huge amounts of water vapor over long distances ending in heavy rain bombs and he's blaming that on global warming absolutely i mean these things are happening now they've happened before i mean to any scale that we can look at we see that extreme climate changes have happened i mean again i mean how do we even come close to a, 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 a 15 degree warming in less than five to five years that we see at the end of the last ice age. Um, one of the things I'm working on right now in writing and documenting is showing pre-anthropogenic climate change. Every single thing that's going on now has happened over and over and over again. There is nothing that is going on now that is unusual within the longer, longer range view of climate change. And so what they're doing is every anomalous weather event is now being blamed on global warming. Um, you know, if, if there's a drought, it's global warming. If it's heavy rain, it's global warming. If there's too many tornadoes, it's global warming. If there are hurricanes, it's global warming. But, you know, hurricanes go cyclically, and there have been periods within the 20th century where there have been lots more hurricanes than we've seen in the last 10 years. In, in, intense, extreme hurricanes, right? Um, and so what they're doing is they're, they're counting on people whose memory is, is very limited. You know, you can, if, if somebody who has not studied this stuff, um, they're not going to know, for example, that the, that the 1950s had far more hurricanes than the 2000s, right? And these hurricanes were intense, right? We can go back and we can see that there's evidence where there have been these uh, concentrated episodes of extreme weather events. In fact, Again, on the Sacred Geometry International site, I have a whole documentation of about 300 years of extreme weather events that preceded any possibility of human influence uh, or human causation, just to show that, that, that what's, what we've experienced in the last 10 years is not exceptional. It is not anomalous. And, and anybody who believes it is needs to take a time out 
and actually spend a little time, invest some time, and actually do the homework, you know, so that you're qualified to have some kind of an opinion. Because I don't think you're going to find anybody, even somebody on the pro-global warming side in the scientific community, who's going to deny that the climate has changed dramatically over and over again, um, long before humans could have had an influence on it, you know, and... Yeah, it's frustrating. So, have you have you noticed any parallels with what's going on politically with the with the looking into this whole climate change thing and seeing how corrupt it it is and how 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 you know the mainstream media is just focusing on the same old thing, the talking points, all this bullshit. And then, have you seen any parallels to the rest of the the political stuffs going on with the the cover ups, the media bullshit, the the scientific materialism um like the the well, scienceism really yeah one of the things i've seen you know is when the the um the younger driest impact hypothesis was first proposed in 2007 um i mean it immediately it was attacked and you know i've gone through carefully sifted through studying all of the literature and now there's dozens and dozens of papers that have come out since 2007 looking at one aspect or another of this younger dryest shift. The and here's something that I found to be quite interesting is that when I begin to look, at, you know, I, some of the attacks that that uh, occurred seem to be really um, just over the top. Yeah. Um, in terms of of um, you know the 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 thing the name calling and the you know the 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 condescension the you know the the dismissing dismissive attitude that oh these guys are off in some fantasy land and all of this if you go through if somebody actually takes the time to go through these papers pro and con mm-hmm. what you're going to see is that um they're basically losing uh they're losing the debate and um there was when you go to the some of the critical papers that came out, um, you know, you see headlines like "comet impact theory disproved." Right? Um, see, what was another one? Uh, some of the ones that were. Um, oh yeah, here was there was one called the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis: A Cosmic Catastrophe. Right? Um, not cosmic catastrophe, in like, but but in a in a uh, uh, ironic sense, in yeah. a sar- in a sarcastic sense. Right? Um, then, uh, oh, let's see. Then there was one, a, um, what did they call it? A, uh, um, oh, a requiem. The, the, co- the Younger Dryas uh, Cosmic Impact, a requiem. And if you go through this, and, and I've, I've written extensively on this, and I'm going to continue writing on this, um, I've had the opportunity now to get to know about half a dozen of the, the, the lead scientists. In fact, I spent four days with three of the lead scientists uh, who wrote the burn paper um, that, that has just come out in the last few months? And essentially, what has happened is the critics have attacked the the, propo- the 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 critics of the theory of attack. The proponents have responded overwhelmingly. One of the uh, one of the scientists, a geologist that I went out to several of the Carolina bays with, Christopher Moore, told me that he initially came as a skeptic and was going to debunk the theory and now he's part of the team that's accepted it hmm. and several of the others have said the same thing that they came on initially as, as skeptics um 
time, but then as they begin to look at the evidence, they begin to see, well, boy, there is something here, right? And and I don't think this is really the the place to go into the 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 details of the controversy. It's very interesting, and uh, but to go into that, it would be better to have sources and more graphs and quotes and stuff to show how basically every criticism has been responded to fully, and it turns out that. Many of the critics, the people who were attacking the hypothesis right out of the gate, without even really looking at it, um, were also proponents of anthropogenic global warming. They were also proponents of the idea that humans were responsible for the mass extinction of the megafauna, the Ice Age megafauna, which for for decades, that was the dominant theory, that, that, that somehow, you know, small bands of roving paleo-Indian hunters, maybe a do- two dozen people on foot with spears, were somehow able to exterminate the entire race of megafauna. Hang on one second. Yep. Speaking of megafauna, I think it's his big dogs. Yeah. yeah. To, to, would you close that door there, please? <laughs> I was going to say, okay. speaking um, of megafauna, your calves yeah. are cold. <laughs> Yeah, well, I want you to think about that. Think about, you know, you've got something like an estimated 10 or 12 million mammoths. And I was, in doing research for one of the recent essays I've been writing, I looked at at databases on human population. The most exhaustively um, documented evidence suggests that the human population during the end of the last Ice Age was about 5 million people, maximum 10 million, right? Now, you figure those people are scattered around the globe, they're on foot, they, they hunt with spears, and somehow these people were able to wipe out over 100 species of megafauna over the entire, over four continents within a few centuries. You know, the idea is so ludicrous, it, it, it's beyond me that I, can't, I cannot fathom how so many, um, you know, paleontologists accepted that, although many of them didn't. Many of them said it had to have been something else. Perhaps climate change was the culprit. Well, what has happened is that you probably have heard recently that we are in the midst of now the sixth great mass extinction in Earth history. I don't know if you've heard that, but anybody can Google. Sixth great mass extinction. And basically they're saying we're in the midst of a a mass extinction event that's as severe as the great five in Earth history. And we're talking about... For example, the Permian-Triassic, around roughly 240 million years ago, when 90 to 95 percent of all species on Earth were wiped out. We're talking about the Cretaceous tertiary event, where the dinosaurs bit the dust, the great marine animals, the bivalves and the... the uh, so many of the, the, the marine animals also went extinct. The, the, uh, and... You know, the evidence shows, you know, when you go through the literature, the, 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 the accumulated literature on the Cretaceous tertiary boundary event, well, you know that there was a major impact into the, the Yucatan Peninsula by an asteroid that has left a crater that's estimated to be some 180 to 200 miles wide, right? That impact basically set fire to all of North America, right? Uh, Wendy Wolbach did uh, research. In fact, she is now... The, the the scientist who did a lot of the research on the evidence for um, for uh, 
massive biomass burning at the end of the KT 66 million years ago. She's now a member of the Comet Research Team, and she was a co-author of these recent papers that have come out documenting evidence for massive global biomass burning during the onset of the Younger Dryas. Well, anyways, you figure, okay, if you look at all the literature, here's, here's some of the things that have been proposed, and they all were probably part of the equation. The impact was so great that it caused every fault line on Earth to collapse. There was an accompany, uh, an associated huge volcanic eruptions because of the, the, the shock effects in the Earth's lithosphere that spewed huge amounts of sulfurous uh, and, and pollutants into the atmosphere. That When this stuff came out, it would have rained out with a battery acid of a, uh, I mean, a pH close to battery acid. You had global firestorms. You had months of total darkness around the Earth. You then had the onset of, of a cosmic winter, as it's been called. In the aftermath of these fires that destroyed things, in the aftermath of this acid rain that would have wiped everything out, in the aftermath of this volcanism and these gigantic earthquakes that might have been measured between 10 and 11 on the Richter scale, with the poisoning of the oceans, the mass death of 75% of all species on Earth, and somehow we're in the midst of something now that's comparable to that? I mean, this is, this so- is the scenario that they're putting out there. You see, that this is the sixth great mass extinction, and it is equivalent to the previous great five. So they're talking about it being biological annihilation? So what are they saying, that one-third of the wildlife now is is shrinking? Like how? So no, it's all based upon computer projections of what is supposed to happen. Oh. That's what it, because it, and it's all, it's, it's assumption based upon assumption based upon assumption. In other words, the assumption is, is that X amount of habitat is going to get wiped out because of human activities, primarily global warming. That habitat is going to lead to the loss of X number of hypothetical species. And in many of these scenarios are simply like, okay, we don't know how many species might be in the Amazon rainforest, so we're just going to assume that it's X number of species. The rainforests disappear, so now we can't actually say what those species will be, but we will just project that X number of hundreds of thousands of species currently unknown are going to disappear, right? Now, to me, you know, when you have an impact of something like, that brought about the demise of the uh, Cretaceous, right? You're looking at something there that you can't even you can't even begin you can't even begin to imagine the violence of that. Think about this: the crater in the Yucatan had the explosive energy. The estimates vary, but between 150 and 300 million megatons. That is like exploding 20 billion Hiroshima bombs all at once. Now, you see, and and that's just part of the equation of global devastation that occurred during uh, the end of the Cretaceous. And it's, you've got to wonder even how anything survived in the aftermath of that. Things did, but all the great dinosaur species didn't. The great ammonites in the ocean didn't, right? But you think about it, 20 billion Hiroshima's, um, you know, 300 million megatons. I mean, do you have any concept of what, what that means? No, I mean, 300 million megatons? 
I don't even, even have a concept of what one. But I, I do have a is. concept of how the, many megatons hit my garage. Yeah, well, that was probably uh, yeah about point zero 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 one megaton. Jesus, if, if that. I can't even imagine then. But you know, I I have a sense of um, of this when you know when I search the six mass extinction. I mean, one of the first things that pops up is a CNN a CNN article on it. And uh, so, you know, suspect right off the bat. And sure. of course, you know, they will label us as being, you know, uh, non-environmentalists and not against pollution and all this other bullshit um, labels, which is, you know, not true at all. So it's just another, it seems to me like it's another one of these, um, it's just another extension of the global warming thing. It's another branch of um, of that, just propaganda. Yeah, it, seems. it, it is. It is, and it's and it's and it's now becomes one of the linchpins and the rationale for why human activities need to be controlled. Yeah, exactly. Because exactly. if if we're not if everything we do, um, you know, involving energy, which is basically everything, if it's not controlled to the nth degree, we're going to destroy the planet. And so there needs to be an elite in charge of all of this who pass the laws and. You've got so you got this small coterie of of politicians and scientists and bureaucrats, scientists bought and paid for, who are going to be part of this elite that are basically now directing the the global economy and and basically controlling what we do. And and here here's what I was getting around to, is that this whole thing about um, the sixth great mass extinction, one of the um, you might say one of the um, Exhibit A, buttressing that, is that, oh, well, look what we did to the megaphone at the end of the Ice Age. Oh, no way. See, if we, yeah, absolutely. Look what we did. So there's, there's Exhibit A in making this case that humans are capable of wiping out huge numbers of species. Is because, see, we already did it. We did it at the end of the last Ice Age when we wiped out the saber-toothed cats and the woolly mammoths and the giant ground sloths and the camels and the the giant elk and on and on and on and on and on. Although they only talk about the woolly mammoths and then they say, well, you say, well, you mean, so humans hunted all the rest of these species <laughs> to extinction? Well, the woolly mammoths were key species. So once humans took out all of the, uh, the woolly mammoths, then there was an ecological domino effect that somehow wiped out a hundred to 120 other species you know, down to the dire wolves and the, 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 the giant beavers and the glyptodonts and the, the myelodons and the toxodons. And, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And, you know, you've got South America extinctions. You've got North America extinctions. You've got Eurasian extinctions. And where, where did most animals of the late place to see survive? North America? East Central Highlands of Africa. And that's why there's so many species of mega mammal in Africa today, because those are the remnant Pleistocene mammals that lived there. And so apparently Africa was a place of refuge during these global climate changes that Egypt? occurred 13,000. I don't know about Egypt. Um, I suspect Egypt being in North Africa probably suffered the same fate as around the Mediterranean. And there is evidence that in the Levant region, which is, you know, would be Syria, Lebanon, uh, what is now Israel, um, that that was a relatively, I say relative, relatively safe zone, um, where it appears that the 
cultural discontinuity was not as extreme as at other places. So I think that would have perhaps spilled over to Egypt, and that might be one reason why Egypt was one of the early cultures that emerged in the aftermath. You see, when the, you know when you go back to seven or 8,000 years ago during the so-called goddess period, there was not a huge motivation for people to, you know, invent technology. You know, there, there wasn't. I mean, because with such a long growing season and such a, a conducive environment, um, you know, like I said, it would have been during a time when there undoubtedly was a, a considerable amount of leisure time. And we see that with the emergence of the arts and, and rituals and ceremonies and music, um, you know, um, these people had leisure time, right? When the climate shifts and suddenly life becomes much harder, now there's an incentive, an impetus to, you know, basically come up with things that are going to try to ameliorate the harsh conditions of a changing climate, which basically implies in industry, technology, um, the building of cities, um, you know, so people going from a nomadic culture um, into a, a settled culture where they're now building more infrastructure and, you know, finding, say, next to a river or next to a food source where they can now um, establish a more permanent habitation. Um, and that's much of what we see happening between five and 6,000 years ago. And Egypt was along the Nile River. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Giza was along the Nile River, for example, and and we see the rise of culture along the Nile. We see the rise of culture in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. We see the rise of culture in the Indus Valley all around the same time, you know, between 4,000 and 6,000 years ago. Um, with a rapidly accelerating cultural evolution between 4,000 and 4,500 years ago. Um, so I think that basically we have to, this is not, you know, a lot of this has been dismissed by critics as, you know, environmental determinism. I think they've missed the point, though. I think that we have to recognize that the environment has played a big role um, and that oftentimes in the past, um, things have happened that have been completely out of our control, and we've been the victims of those, not the perpetrators, the victims. And so coming back around to this this idea is that you know the resistance and this is the point i want to i want people to take away is a lot of the resistance to the younger driest impact hypothesis has come from factions that are invested in these ideas of anthropogenic caused extinctions and anthropogenic uh driven climate change and so on um so if you go through like i have i mean i've gone through uh, some of the the backgrounds of the of the, the key people who have been uh, authoring these, these critical attacks on the Younger Dryas impact idea, and uh, a large percentage of them are invested in these universities that are in the forefront of promoting the uh, sixth great mass extinction scenario and so on. So I, uh, to me, and one of the lead authors <clears throat> regularly writes for like the Huffington Post, where he will say things like, where he will talk about anybody who questions the climate change consensus as a climate denier. And, and this is somebody, this is coming from a, you know, a major, highly distinguished scientist. But to me, it is total pseudoscience to call anyone who questions the consensus of climate change a climate change denier. But when I realized the extent to which he was part of this, 
you know, liberal establishment, and that he's one of the lead authors attacking the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. Right there, it, it suggests that, yeah, there's, there's a political implication to that. And, you know, I mean, yeah, and it certainly spills over into everything. We see that there is a movement now, both in U.S. and Canada, to basically curtail basic basic individual freedoms, uh, the ability to speak out uh, with dissenting viewpoints without being labeled uh, a hater or, or, you know, being name-called. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really exasperating for those of us who really do appreciate and, and value the idea of human freedom and realizing that if we want to move ahead, if we want to prosper, you know, we need to be free. We can't be controlled by remote bureaucracies that don't give a fuck about the rest of us, you know, and, and that's where we're moving, both in Canada and the U.S. Well, the U.K. is even you know, worse right now. I mean, the U.K. is, 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 the UK is, is a disaster yeah. for that. U.K. is a disaster, yes. And, and you know, it, it, it's all of this, basically, this, these collectivist ideologies that, that say the you know, the, the worth of the individual is totally subordinate to the group, and the individual doesn't matter anymore, right? I mean, I don't want to get off into this right now, but this whole thing right now with gun control in this country right now, is it, it's very much like the, it has parallels to the, the climate debate because there are, there are factions on one side who are promoting an agenda, but when it comes right down to it, they have no idea what they're talking about. Just like the the vast majority of people promoting global warming, basically don't have the slightest knowledge of actual climate science or paleoclimatology or the history of climate or any of that, but they're out there regurgitating what they've been spoon fed, and basically it's the same thing. We had this big big marches here, you know, um, com- which are completely engineered. You know, this is not some spontaneous no, thing. No, it's not an organic thing. By five. Five, sixteen, and seventeen-year-olds. No, no fucking way. You know, and and then you look at the people who are out there marching, and they don't they don't know anything. They, you know, you can see over and over. There's posted on the internet people that have gone out there interviewing the marchers, asking them about, and and you can see the amount of thought, the amount of knowledge that has gone into this is virtually non-existent. It's purely knee-jerk emotional reactions to something that was horrible. But even that, just just like so many of these other things, and this is all I'm going to say about it, the official version that we're now being fed about what happened there, it stinks. Yeah. It does. And anybody who cares to, to, to investigate it further will can quickly see how, how many inconsistencies and contradictions and omissions there are in the mainstream narrative now being pushed out there by mainstream phony media. Exactly. And just, thank God for alternate media yeah like I mean, what we're doing right here exactly there's so much evidence that gun control is not had was not the problem and is not the problem and i mean there's, there's all the evidence points is to, this the first generation to um protest after their rights taken away <laughs> yeah isn't it yeah that that is the supreme irony right there out there protesting yes take away my rights so that i feel better about some imaginary thing that has been concocted for political agendas. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't know. I don't know what to think, other than to hope uh, that, that, that there is another side that begins to emerge that, that takes a little bit more educated, rational, long-term view of this, and also has a base of, of appreciating what the Bill of Rights means and why the Second Amendment is in there. And no, 
I'm sorry, the Second Amendment is not obsolete. As That's one of the talking points you hear over and over and over and over again. Oh, the Second Amendment is obsolete. We don't need that anymore. You know, does, does, does an individual citizen need a nuclear weapon? Blah, blah, blah. You know, the stuff they come with is, is laughable. But right? I mean, but I mean, there are, it's not an art. But I mean, seriously, is this is this going to lead to trying to take away people's guns and try and like that, that's the what has happened to cultures and, and countries that have done this over the last hundred years? Right. It's it's pretty disastrous right. afterwards. I mean, you know, you take away people's guns, you take away their rights. And then the next thing you know, you're. Yes. Getting shot in the face. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is scary. It's like a fucking 1984 novel right now. It's crazy. And it seems like there's a whole bunch of brainwashed people that are just buying into the narrative for a little bit of fame and exactly. fortune, maybe. I don't know. It's crazy. It's, it's crazy. And you're right. There's a whole lot of brainwashed people that I think are, are, are I, to me, it's like they're not psychologically grown up. And so what they do is they, they turn to the, to the government as, as some kind of surrogate parent. And, and then they, 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 um, you know, have come to believe that somehow the government is some kind of all knowing, all wise institution, instead of just a collection of a bunch of self-serving, you know, bureaucrats and politicians, you know, which is all it is really. But yeah, well, oh, the government needs to do this. The government needs to do that. And, and everything will be fine. And, you know, I, I, to me, I just got to figure, well, this is, this is the outcome of allowing the government a monopoly on the education of children in this country for so long. And, um, you know, they've been spoon-feeding the, these kids this shit since they were in kindergarten. And most of these, I can tell you this, most of these people out there protesting um, are coming from basically upper-middle-class, a lot of them. I'd say majority of them are coming from upper-middle-class backgrounds. They have, you know, all through their... Uh, school years up into their college years, they've been fed this same crap by government-supported institutions. And now, you know, it's, it's basically this, exor- this feel-good exercise. We're out here. Oh, look, we're all together. We've got our signs, and we want to stop violence. Well, look, what they don't realize is, look, if you ban guns, you, you think that's going to – you think that's not going to be violent? If you ban guns and you then try to start confiscating guns – you know, uh, that's crazy. You know, it, it's, it's crazy. Um, and again, it's just people reacting emotionally rather than rationally. And so I don't know what the answer is other than, you know, we need to keep hammering it at an alternative point of view out there and basically get ready because, hey, I'm not predicting any disasters. I don't do that. But what I do say is this. We can see as we look at the paleoclimatic record going back hundreds of thousands of years, we can see that the longest period of, of stability, of unbroken, of, of climate, which is relatively benign and relatively stable, has been the last 10,000 years. <laughs> We're in an unprecedentedly long period of relative stability. And I think that almost on a weekly to monthly basis now, the cosmos is trying to get our attention, saying, look, you guys are living on borrowed time. And unless you get your fucking act together and face reality, you're going to go down the tubes just like a dozen other civilizations that people like Mike Sher- Michael Shermer are scared to admit actually could have existed, see? And so, but people don't want to go there. See, people are afraid because it's, 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 the thing is too big. You know, we want to keep it right here in, in this little 
minuscule feel-good reality that we can that we can wrap ourselves in like a cocoon and think everything's going to be all right. And if we just turn to the government bureaucracies, they're going to take care of us. And there are experts out there who basically know everything. It's just like I've gotten that. I cannot tell you how much the the, the criticisms I have gotten, particularly from growing on on Rogan. You know where you know, five, six, seven million people have listened to some of those podcasts and they're saying, well, what would the real experts say? You know, what would the, you know, what would the real scientists say? You know, implying like, well, the, you know, the real scientists are, you know, the IPCC hired scientists that <laughs> whose purpose that they were hired for is to put out this anthropogenic claim. See, well, and then so, so they, they brought some guy on there, you know, who was supposed to debunk me, right? Well, we we all know how that went. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and it's just, you know, the point is, is that they think that unless you've gone these certain approved channels, bureaucratically approved channels, then your voice is not legitimate. Your knowledge, your education is not legitimate, and so we can just wave our hand and it goes away because oh, this guy isn't a a, a real scientist. Well, you know, maybe nobody's paying me. I pay myself to do science, right? I've spent 45 years studying science, studying climate change, studying mass extinctions, studying asteroid impacts, studying ice ages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's my obsession. It's the thing I've done. And so then you have people who know nothing about any of this who are going to wave their hand and dismiss all of that because it doesn't quite conform to something that they have been spoon-fed by mainstream media. And i got to say, it's quite pathetic. Yeah, but you guys are making a difference. I mean, people like you, the rogue scholars out there that are, that are taking all these different disciplines and putting it all together into a bigger picture, and then you're finding all these little pockets of scientists that are actually doing it. There's more scientists than we realize that I think than anybody realizes they're actually not part of the, the 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 false paradigm that we're under and they're starting to come together and they're starting to connect and i think that it is changing and guys like you have really made a big difference and you know it, it people you know yeah there's a bunch of people marching and there's a bunch of people that are sort of you know brainwashed but there's also a, a large contingent of people that are getting off facebook they're getting off the tv they're not they can see through the lies now and once you have that little tiny seed of, of and waking up. And I know it sounds cliche, but you, you can't go back. You can't look at it the same again. So I think, I think you guys are really, yeah. you guys are really, you know, changing just over the last two years since we've talked, stuff has changed so much. Yes. And, and, you know, I, I, in, in spite of all these things I'm saying here, I, I'm still basically quite optimistic. Um, although I am going to admit that it may take a shock um, you know, some very spiritual traditions that I've investigated over the years will suggest that, you know, in any kind of a, 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 a the spiritual evolution of an individual, there are these shocks within the, the process, um, <clears throat> you know, in the Kabbalistic system, which is the, the, the ancient system of Jewish mysticism, which I studied into for quite some time, years ago, they've got a system there where you're you're essentially climbing this tree of life from the densest state of matter into these higher levels of spiritual knowledge, and within that, they, they within this tree of life, there are gaps, and to cross those gaps requires an extra burst of energy. It requires a shock. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of the the spiritual teacher George Gurdjieff, who. Um, 
was a was an Armenian mystic rogue um, teacher, but um, in spite of the fact that, like so many of these teachers, he was very controversial. If you can strip away, you know, the 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 those aspects of so many of these guys, what you do see is that they did deliver legitimate information about uh, systems and traditions that had largely remained obscure from from mainstream knowledge. And one of the things he did, he he came in, he had brought in basically a big part of what he was doing was was bringing forward stuff that had come down from Samaria traditionally. And um, again, they have this idea that within any within any process. And in fact, I think some of the self help books that have come out in the last few decades will will look at this same kind of a a concept. And and I think everybody that has attempted any kind of creative endeavor is going to have experienced this, where you 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 start out initially and you're full of energy and enthusiasm, and then you go and and you know your initial. Uh, inspiration sort of dissipates and you come to this sort of stalemate. I mean, anybody who's attempted to write a book will know what that is. They call it writer's block, right? Where you get stuck and you just go, man, I was moving. I had such good momentum. Now I'm stuck. What do you do? Well, you know, you might get up and you go have a cup of coffee. (laughs) You might go smoke a joint, have a beer, go whatever, right? You do something other than, than just you know, maintaining the same pace. You do something um, to help you get over this gap, right? Now, what the teachers like Gurdjieff did was they said, well, this, this applies on a planetary level. One of his teachings was there was a cosmic timetable over and over again. This is one of the things that he taught, right? Now, whether or not all of his teachings were valid or not is it, not really of relevance. What's relevant is that some of it was right on, right? And he said that we are on a cosmic timetable, and this was part of this tradition, this ancient tradition that, that, that he was transmitting. We are on a cosmic, part of a cosmic timetable, and we are behind schedule. That was his, the crux of his teaching, right? He died in 1949 after, you know, um, creating, writing books and spawning this whole school of teaching. But I always thought that, I encountered that idea in the early 70s, and, it, and it, to me it was electrifying, and I thought... Can this be true? And and everything I've learned in, in the interim suggests to me that, yeah, it is true. It's like, we don't know when the next impact is going to come. We do know that that shit is flying by us regularly. And that even a small thing, you know, I was talking about, you know, the, 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 the impact in, New Me- in Mexico, which, of course, that's a planet killer. When you have something that's perhaps six miles wide, moving at, t- say, 20 miles per second, slamming into the earth that's a planet killer and you know relative to the size of the earth something six miles in diameter isn't that big right but in the same way you think about uh, a 38 caliber bullet that's not very big is it if i if i'm standing six feet in front of you and i throw a 38 caliber uh bullet at you you know it might sting a little bit. it's not going to cause any damage though but if I accelerate that bullet to 1,200 feet per second and it hits you, hell yeah, it's going to cause damage, see? And this shit that's flying around out there, it's moving really, really, really fast. And you figure even a smaller object, a half a mile in diameter, striking the earth, at closing into the earth and striking the earth at, at, at you know 15 to 20 miles per second, per second, that's going to release so much kinetic energy 
that it's going to affect the global climate for years, right? <laughs> what we're finding now is, oh, see, you got there's two perspectives here that are coming together. On the one hand, you've got, you know, astronomers looking at the sky, right? And what are they seeing? They're seeing, you know what, there's a whole lot more debris flying around out there than we even imagined a few decades ago, a lot more. Then you have the geologists looking at the surface of the Earth and going, oh, you know what, gosh, there's hundreds of scars all over the surface of the Earth from these cosmic impacts. A century ago, we they didn't were arguing about whether they were Right, exactly. And now... So, and, and then on the other hand, you've got climatologists looking and going, wait a second, we see that there have been numerous episodes in the history of, of terrestrial climate where it has changed catastrophically overnight. What's driving that? And then you've got paleontologists looking at mass extinctions and going, we used to think that the, that the history of life was a relative continuum, but now we know it's not. It's been repeatedly interrupted. Um, you know, Stephen Jay Gould, the late great anthropologist, said, um, called it punctuated equilibrium, right? This is the norm now, see? And now what I've been saying, like in our early part of this discussion, is we see that that same model now applies to human cultural development, punctuated equilibrium. And we have now ridden on the longest period of climate stability known. And that's something people need to think about, right? And so at any time, that could change at any time. We could wake up tomorrow and there's a, a four or 500 foot piece of an asteroid flying in our direction. It hits the Earth. It doesn't cause any mass extinctions. But what it does is it throws enough dust into the atmosphere to cause a global agricultural collapse. And even a year would have devastating consequences. If it went for two years, you know what's going to happen? Well, in, in, of course... Where, where an object of that size hits, you know, it's going to be devastating. You know, a, a, an object four or 500 feet in diameter striking the surface of the Earth would be like if it struck in the southeast, it would pretty much annihilate everything in the state of Georgia, right? And nothing would survive, right? On the other side of the Earth, yeah, people are going to survive, absolutely. However, what's going to happen is there's going to be a global cooling, and the next summer when that comes around, Guess what? Agriculture collapses, right? If that happens two years in a row, we're fucked. Yeah. You see, we're fucked. Two years in a row, and you're looking at a, a billion or more people perishing in the aftermath of even a small impact. Would the, would the human species go extinct? Hell no. No way. But the economic consequences? Unimaginable. Unimaginable. Um, you know, just from, from Krakatoa, you mentioned Krakatoa earlier, which... Uh, you know, when that erupted, um, no, it wasn't Krakatoa, it was Tambora. When it erupted in uh, the early 1800s, there was basically a year without a summer um, in Europe. From that one, and, and, and an asteroid impact could be far more devastating than that. Well, and, and almost see, worse and than that, almost worse than that even, is, is an EMP, like, or a, uh, you know, another Carrington event, which doesn't, I mean, that might even happen more often than, than asteroid impacts. Sure. Yeah, and, and, and you know, know an and, event like that. Yeah, yeah, that would. I mean, that would probably that would be more of a electronic cultural kind of. Uh, you know, that would be a different type of disaster, but it it could be even worse in a way. Yes, and I think this is the point. And and you know, my my stance is this: I want to understand all of the factors. So that includes understanding the human effects on the environment. And listen. 
we do some shit to the environment, no doubt. I mean, that that amount of that mass of plastic that's in the Pacific Ocean, that sucks. You know, it's twice the size of Texas. It's this massive, you know, and we need to we need to stop that. We need to figure out how to clean that up, right? But we'll, you know, if if we're focused on trying to bioengineer the planet to reduce, you know, or to geoengineer the planet to to eliminate carbon dioxide emissions, you know, we're really talking about a, 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 tri- a multi-trillion dollar price tag over the long term. And we really need to be saying, where do we need to focus our resources, right? And so I'm a huge advocate of basically us beginning, um, getting back to a vigorous space program. I think we need that. I think that's our destiny. And, and I think nature wants us to do that. I think nature wants us to become a space-faring civilization. And it ever since the early 70s, we've known that we could offload our industrial civilization into near-Earth space. And in fact, the, the first proposals that came out in 1976 for doing just such a scenario uh, basically laid out a three-decade timeline for accomplishing that. And that's basically been passed now for 10 years. Um, you know, again, this idea that we're on a cosmic timetable and we're behind schedule, I think is, is, is something, an insight that people need to take with them. And what we need more than anything right now is a kind of awakening to the fact that whether we like it or not, we are part of this bigger system. And if we don't come to terms with the, the bigger system the way it really is, well, we're going to be fucked. You know, it wouldn't take much of an impact to send us straight back to the Stone Age. And I can tell you what, most people that I know would prefer to not be living a Stone Age existence. Like a you put me on the short list. Stone Age existence. I mean, just think about the next time you get a toothache and you can't go to the dentist. I mean, you start thinking about, you know, the consequences and, and the privileges that we've got by living in this advanced society that we are now in compared to, you know, hundreds of generations of our ancestors. That's the privilege. The privilege is, is we're living in the, a, a, a system that was the outgrowth of Western civilization. And it's created, it's, it's extended our lifespan, it's created levels of comfort and leisure unprecedented in thousands of years. And, you know, sure, is it perfect? Hell no, it's not. Does it cause damage to the environment? Sure, it does. But all part of the growing and learning and evolving process is figuring out how to constantly do it better. And one of the things I think that we need to really be seriously considering is, is like I said, if we realize that we can create a new industrial civilization off the planet, and that is not some science fiction dream, you know, some science fiction fantasy, but any more than, you know, the space program. Look, here we are. We're talk- I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. You're up in, in Calgary, right? Yep. We're talking because of satellites orbiting the Earth. That's what's allowing us to have this conversation. You know, 50 years ago, we wouldn't have, well, we could have had long distance, but can you imagine what it would have been costing um, to spend, what, two hours talking long distance, you know, 50 years ago? When my grandfather was born in 1895, the main mode of transportation was horseback, right? My grandfather, born in 1895, right? How much has the world changed in just, you know, 120 years or so, or, or, you know, it's, it's phenomenal. And people just need to realize that, gosh, we have tremendous potential in front of us. You know, we can do things now 
that could completely change the game, could open up vistas of, of possibilities unimagined from where we're at now. I'm a big advocate of solar energy, but I understand that, you know, and, and you know, as a builder, we've done solar uh, applications and installments and so on. The problem is, is that, you know, it's still not efficient. But when you get 5,000 miles out, out into free space, you've got such an abundance of solar energy that it really does literally become a viable source of energy for running machines and factories and all kinds of things. If you set up a square meter solar collector on the floor of Death Valley in the middle of the summer at high noon on a clear day, the amount of solar energy received there would be about one-tenth of what you could get with that same collector out in space, right? It becomes a viable source of energy. And, you know, there's, there's, we could spend a whole uh, discussion about the potential for us moving into space and become a cosmic space-faring civilization, which I, I believe if we don't do it, we're going to go extinct as a civilization, not as, as a species, but as a civilization. Um, because once now we understand that we're part of a cosmic environment um, and that that stuff that's flying by out there is potential resources. You know, I mean, you look in the asteroid belt and, or, or even the near-Earth asteroids, which are, ironically, the near-Earth asteroids, the ones, the shit that's flying by us that could be a threat, right? That's the most ex- easily accessible. We're within a decade of being able to start harvesting asteroids if the will was there. Now, which would be preferable? We discover an asteroid that's circling the sun. The, the um, astrophysicists take a look at it, and they go, oh, you know what? This thing's going to hit us in 10 years, and if we don't do something, we're fucked, right? Or we have the technological capability to mount an international expedition to that asteroid and begin harvesting its resources and basically mine it into non-existence. Now, I know the stuff that I'm saying right now to a lot of people who've never even given any of this any thought is just so out, so beyond their conceptual framework that their first knee-jerk reaction is going to be to just like, oh, dismiss it, right? But no, it's just as valid to point out these possibilities now as it was in, say, the year 1960 to point out the possibilities of what we could do once we be, make that initial foray into space, you know? If, if it wasn't for the space program, there wouldn't be an Internet, right? There wouldn't be. Um, because without the space program, we wouldn't have had the satellites. Without the satellites, we wouldn't have had the global communication system that, that makes all of this possible. But that's only the beginning, see? So I think that basically all of the traditions and the archaic traditions that we see from our past is pointing towards the same thing is that we're aspiring to something higher. And if you begin to look at all of these religions, why, you know, even though Christianity, in my mind, has become debased, there was an original Gnostic Christianity from the first, second, and third centuries A.D. that had to go underground once Christianity became the authoritarian religion of of the Roman Empire. But basically what it taught was mankind's ultimate destiny was the cosmos, that man's ultimate destiny was heaven. And heaven wasn't just some supernatural metaphor. It was actually the celestial realm, you see. And this is part of these these traditions that have been lost. We could do a whole discussion just on some of these traditions, which I think are pointing towards the idea 
that we're supposed to get our asses up and and move the species, move life. See, here's here's the thing, Graham and Darren. For what? For for uh, six hundred million years, life has been vulnerable on this planet to every incursion of a cosmic event, whether it's a d- disintegrating comet, whether it's an asteroid, whether it's a solar outburst, whether it's a nearby, say, supernova, which I think is actually related to the flux of cometary material to the inner solar system. But all of this stuff has served to constantly truncate life in its effort to, to, to move ahead, to evolve, right? So our natural evolution is to leave. <clears throat> The natural evolution is to expand. You see, right now, as long as we're life and as long as civilization is confined to a, an exclusively terrestrial existence, we as a species, we as a culture, we as, a, as the biology of this planet are vulnerable, right? There's only one species on this planet that has the ability to change the rules of the game so that the vulnerability of planet Earth to these kinds of incursions is reduced by orders of magnitude, and we are that species. And if we don't, if we fucking blow it by by not getting our heads out of our asses and, and looking at the sky like our ancestors did, yeah, we're gonna the the the, the, the clock is going to be reset. You know, the the the, the terrestrial computer is going to reboot, and. Um, we need to do something. We need a backup system, and we need to move forward and, and begin to do something. And we need to do it now. And we, we, don't have, we basically don't have time to waste. This, I, I, the people who are listening to this, I want you to start paying attention to this, what's going on in space, in the cosmos, near the Earth, in our near-Earth neighborhood. You will quickly realize how vulnerable we really are. And it's almost as if we've been granted a little sort of a cosmic reprieve in order to get our shit together and figure this out. But if we don't do it, son, somebody else is, you know, we're going to get kicked back. Maybe another speed, maybe another culture is going to have to evolve over the next three or four or 5,000 years, or another species is going to have to evolve that actually moves it forward. Because I think the imperative of terrestrial life is to become cosmic. And if we don't fulfill that destiny, well, then we're fucked. Well, we have the technology. But if we do... Oh, we have the technology. Oh, absolutely, we have the technology. I tell you, what we don't have is the will and the vision. Yeah. When I was a kid in high school, we had the will and we had the vision, and we moved into we made that first foray foray into the high frontier. And because of that, look at all of the things as a consequence of that. We are having this conversation because of that will and that vision. That that that. And, and to me, I I see parallels with the will and the vision that built the great Gothic cathedrals. It's it's no. It's no coincidence in my mind that the, that, the dyna- that the geometry of the Ogival Gothic vault is actually aerodynamic geometry. That, that when we send rocket ships and spaceships up into the, into the cosmos, the aerodynamic geometry of those space hulls is the same as the geometry that you see in a Gothic cathedral. And it's and essentially the same thing. The Gothic cathedral is designed so that when you walk into it, it lifts the soul and the spirit of, of humans going into that and makes them feel the presence of the celestial realm. That's what they're designed to do, right? Um, you look at every religion, it's about the same thing. It's about transcendence. It's about this idea that there's a higher level of existence that is attainable 
but it's not going to be something that's just given to us. It's something we have to work for. And if we don't do it, if we, if we don't do it, well, then, you know, we're going to get our asses kicked and we're going to have to start the cycle all over again, like the, the Greek myth of Sisyphus, trying to roll that boulder up the mountain and he gets right to the top and he gets attacked by an eagle, right? And then what happens? Or in some cases, it's a vulture. He loses the boulder, rolls back down to the bottom of the hill. Now he's got to go back down and roll that boulder back up to the top of the mountain before the curse is lifted, right? But every time he gets close to the top of the mountain, that eagle comes down out of the sky and starts pecking at him, and boom, the boulder rolls back down. Well, if you figure that that eagle is, is a the piece government? of cosmic debris flying in, <laughs> well, yes. And see that. So, you know, the, here, which brings me to that. You see, it's it all comes down. It all comes down to the people. If we continue to vote away our rights, if we continue to hand over the the the, 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 the original vision of America, is what brought us to where we're at now. The idea that, yeah, when people are free, they can accomplish miracles. But when you chain them down, when you chain them down. And, and, and bury them under under bureaucratic debris where you can't draw a breath without, you know, having to answer to some government bureaucrat. Well, I tell you when, now you, you, you've confirmed our fate. Right there, you've confirmed our fate. And that's why we need a political awakening. We need a vision. We need inspiration. We need that can-do attitude, that entrepreneur, a revival of the entrepreneurial spirit that says, yeah, we can do this thing. We can go and we can harvest asteroids. By God, we can do that. And when we've gotten to that level, whoa, what has happened? Well, we are at a, we are at a whole other, uh, the rules have changed. The rules have changed, and now we are not vulnerable in the same way we were. So right? are you going to run? When we have, uh, no, I'm not, but I would certainly support anybody who, who promoted that. Because, see, my focus has got to be, if I were to run, that would be that would be a, a full time thing to do. Um, I, what I want to do is inspire people with the knowledge and with the ideas, and somebody else out there where can actually take that mantle on. Um, I, I love to see it. I'm I'm very intrigued by Adam Kokesh declaring for the presidency in 2020. There's a guy who totally gets it. Yeah, you know, I've been trying to get him um, on. Oh, I wish you would, man. Yeah, I wish you would. This whole um, presidential run thing has kind of made it fucking harder, but I'll get there. We're Facebook friends, so or we were before I deleted my Facebook. Fuck. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. I haven't quite got there yet. I haven't deleted my Facebook yet, but I'm yeah. It's tempting, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It so, is. Well, I did it. I'm not so going back. Yeah. Can you message him back? for me and tell him to come on the show? Well, I, I don't, yeah, I don't have, I've never made contact with him. Uh, actually, Cameron, no, my Ooh, brother, guaranteed my Cameron. brother Rowan is Adam. You know Cameron? Yep, well, Cameron hey, W. Cameron is the fellow who does the, the Sacred Geometry yep, International I know Cameron, Web. yep, yep. I'll text yeah, him. Yeah, Cameron is, he's an awesome dude, man. He is, he is just, yeah, he's a multi-talented individual. He's totally gets it. Um, it's gratifying to have friends that you're, you know, Wow, this guy gets it. He's doing a new website. Um, I don't, I'm not sure when he's been working on it uh, arduously for months now, and I think it's going to go live pretty darn soon. Um, the new updated Sacred Geometry International is going to be awesome. 
So I hope a lot of people check that out. And then Brad Young's website, Geocosmic Rex, is great. I mean, we have dozens of video clips up there now. We've got probably half a dozen video clips of when Graham Hancock and I were out in the field uh, looking at the, the imprints of these gigantic catastrophes. That's some really interesting stuff. If you go, if people go to the Geocosmic Rex website, um, I want to yeah, have there Brad will be a on, lot actually. of things. Oh yeah, I think that you should get Brad on and you should get Cameron on. Both, yeah, of them. they both make good. Yeah, well, we had and, Brad um, on one time then, when we were cruising around the Scablons, Washington. Yeah, actually, yeah, he took us to uh, Rock Lake. Lake. Yeah, Rock Lake, maybe. Yeah, that lake. I think. we ended up we ended oh, up lake. staying in a cabin right on that road. Yeah, that's right. The a couple years later or a year later. Yeah. So yeah, what do you? Well, yeah, we need to hang out again, man. That was sure fun, and I, you know, I just love that section of the country so much that you know I'm sure I'm going to be getting back there multiple times. So we need to plan some stuff, you know, and maybe even figure some kind of maybe some kind of way to do a retreat or something, and invite people who Ooh, can come up, a, and we basically idea. take them out on a tour. Um, you, you know, mushrooms. something along those lines. Yeah, you know, and now that Washington med- is, yeah, do some meditation, some spiritual work while we're there, and. Maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Look up at the stars. I think something. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that could be profound as far as getting people to, to realize what the bigger picture is all about. We'll do it in Hawaii so we can go up the mountain and check out the Milky Way. New moon, dark sky. Yeah, for sure. Ooh, that sounds nice. <laughs> that does sound nice. Too. Yeah. He paints such a lovely picture. <laughs> So, yeah, so what else do you got uh, coming up, Randall? Um, any any events or anything like that or any other uh, things that people should know about? No, I don't really have much um, in the schedule because I'm trying to write. So I, I found that um, that in past, you know, when I took things off the schedule, I could actually get some writing done. And yeah. as soon as I started scheduling things, then, you know, oh, I got to talk coming up next week. So I got to get ready for that. So I'll yeah, hold exactly. off on yeah. writing, yeah. getting this next chapter written. So I've kind of deliberately, um, scaled back, um, things, um, you know, I'm trying to, you know, do this thing around the Nipigon region I'd like to do next summer because I think Lake Nipigon, i just want to explore the possibility is that was an impact, a younger dryest impact site. Oh um, yeah. We'll come for sure. We'll do some walleye fishing. It'll be great. That will be great. Yeah, that would be fun. I yeah. haven't listen. I haven't fished since I was a kid. Um, like my grandpa again, the one who was born in eighteen ninety five. I used to go fishing with him, and I have literally not fished probably since I was fourteen or fifteen years old. So I would love yeah, to do keep, that. Let again. us know like as far out in front of that as you can, and we'll make arrangements so that we can be there because that is real close to like yeah, my home stomping ground. So it's great fishing. It's uh, good times. Yeah, and, and there's some really interesting evidence of major catastrophes, gigantic floods and so forth um, that I want to explore and get samples uh, to look for things like nano diamonds and microspherals and things. And now that I have some connections with these guys who have access to the laboratories and so on. Um, oh, I also want to mention the, uh, George Howard's website is a good one for people to go to. That's called The Cosmic Tusk. And I, 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 people need to add that to their list because that's an excellent website, and he's in the forefront. He's one of the co-authors of these recent burn papers, 
and he runs a website, and it has lots of great links on it. And then uh, I will actually have a new website up pretty soon as well that's going to cover some of the stuff that the other websites don't, um, and it's going to be called it, – it is actually uh, Cosmographic Research, and there's an old version of the website um, that I haven't updated simply because – with Cameron doing his thing and Brad doing his thing, you know, they've pretty much had this stuff covered. But I've still got a lot of uh, information, material, and so forth that's not on the other two websites, uh, photographs and also I'm going to be doing <clears throat> the Cosmographic Research site, which hopefully should be up in a month or two. Um, you know how these things go. Other than that, no, I'm, I'm just here. You know, we're doing our, our design-build business. Um, We've signed a couple of contracts recently, um, and hopefully that will pay for a couple of expeditions next summer. Uh, I am going in for some major dental work over the next couple of months. You know, I just, I was blessed with really awesome hair, but I don't have great teeth. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to, you know, get that rectified. Um, so I'm going to do a series of dental implants. I'm not looking forward to it, but uh, nor the cost of it. God, that stuff is expensive. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. But they've, they've assured me that if I do it, it's basically going to be good for the rest of my life, which I'm hoping is at least, well, I'm planning for it to be a minimum 50 more years. Nice. Because, um, listen, it's going to take that long to go to all the places I want to go and read all the books I want to read. Yeah, so, that's yeah. right. Well, well. Fuck, you know, I'm looking right now, and there's, like, a ton of, like, uh, um, fishing, camping, like, places where you go, we go rent a cabin, a couple cabins, and it's, like, yeah. they give you a boat, we'll have yeah. a couple of boats and some cabins, yeah. and we can explore the lake and eat fish every night, it'll be fucking good shit. Yeah. Oh, God, that would be, yes, that would be just over-the-top fun and awesome combined, yeah, that would be great. There you that go. So you can do. start yeah, planning it out. We could rent out the whole camp. You could do some presentations each night after oh, yeah. a day on the lake, doing some uh, charters. You could set up something good there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'll open to whatever. Yeah. We'll sure. offline that conversation. Oh. All righty. Well, geez. We'll, we'll continue that conversation another day offline. Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And as, as, we get a little closer, yeah. We'll we'll nail down. I'm I'm kind of thinking of July because there's things happening on my end that actually is going to give me a couple of weeks free in July. So that's a potential. Um, that's for yeah, coming we'll up see. to the northwest we'll see how it plays here. Out. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no, to the, yeah. To the... Is that for Nipigon or this yeah. direction? Nipigon, probably July 2019. That yeah, would I mean, be. yeah. So would you be there too, Graham? Yeah, yeah. You're talking 2019, right? No, I'm talking next summer. Oh, this summer coming up? Oh, wow. Oh, Let that, us know as soon as you can. Yeah, that'll be tight. Yeah, let's uh, yeah, let's figure that out. <clears throat> yeah, we'll have to see. Well, we'll we see. You know, if, it, yeah. if, if you guys said, yeah, we can do it in August, but we can't do it in July, I mean, I would certainly, you know, I'm flexible because I, I there's, listen, there's plenty of places that I, I want to go, you yeah, know, yeah, I mean, yeah. places I haven't been, places I want to get back to, you know. That's right. Okay. I started well, doing research our last, last uh, spring when we went to the Southwest, you know, what I was looking at was the, the great denudation where, you know, there's been such extreme erosion along the rim of the Colorado Plateau 
that you know I've begun to seriously question whether the gradualist scenarios can can um, explain it, and I don't think they can. And you know, when you asked me earlier about cyclicals, cycles, and and the great year and all that, we kind of didn't didn't follow through with everything that I could have said. But one of the things I was pointing out was that you know this last shift into the what they call the late Wisconsin Ice Age happened around 26,000 years ago. Well, the onset of the Pleistocene itself is now dated to 2.6 million, which is a, a thousand processional cycles. And basically what that was, was what differentiates the Pleistocene from epoch, from the Pliocene epoch, which preceded it, was this succession, this alternating succession of glacial interglacial ages. It's as if something pushed the planet into this cycle that now perhaps a dozen, two dozen, maybe more, um, cycles of glacial interglacial ages that have characterized the 2.6 million years of the Pleistocene. Well, what the evidence suggests to me is that you basically have two modes of global change. You have the mode that we've experienced in historical times, which is you get up in the morning and you're pretty well certain that you're going to see the sun rise in the east and, you know, spring is going to follow winter and summer is going to follow spring and so on. When you have these transitions, like a transition into an ice age, imagine this, your transition. Now, the buildup of this huge mass of ice, 6 million cubic miles of ice, doesn't happen overnight. But the climate change that, that begins to inaugurate that process, in effect, does happen overnight. It, imagine this. Imagine if next winter you had winter, and then when spring was supposed to come, spring didn't come. That's happening and now. It stayed winter. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. yeah. It's yeah. supposed to snow another well, six now inches imagine this that weekend. You go the next fifteen thousand years, and there's no summer. Oh fuck! That's the onset of an ice age. Yeah, that's the onset. And then over that fifteen thousand years. What's that? That's the onset. That's not like the onset and the middle and the end set. <laughs> well, the onset is that there's no summer. So whatever snow has accumulated doesn't melt away. Then it just keeps snowing. And basically, you're now in winter for 15,000 years. And then what happens is suddenly there's a shift and there's a gigantic meltdown, which is like exactly what we see happened you know, 12, 13,000 years ago is that there's a gigantic meltdown and it's so huge that the volumes of water issuing off the melting ice sheets can only be measured in sverdrups. Sverdrup, I use the term, because that's a term that oceanographers came up with to describe the motion of these massive uh, currents, oceanic currents, that a sverdrup is one million cubic meters per second. And it was applied to... to ocean circulation, because it certainly was not relevant to anything, uh, you know, any rivers or flowing water that we see today. But when we look at the imprints of the last meltdown, we're looking at flows that can only be measured that were literally on the scale of oceans moving over the land. And this is difficult for people to imagine. But, you know, again, the Michael Shermers of the world don't get that. They don't get that if you have literally a tsunami of meltwater coming off an ice sheet, sweeping over whole states. Whatever was there, it ain't there anymore afterwards. It's gone. And what would you expect to find 10,000 years later? Look, 
if we, you know, if we humans walked away, if right now all human beings on Earth disappeared and we left all of this huge infrastructure behind, how much of it would be left in 10,000 years that, if, that somebody visiting from outer space would come in here and take a look? How much of it would exist? Almost none of it. In fact, one of the, the, you know, the Earth Without Humans series that came out a number of years ago, they pointed out at the end of 10,000 years, That's what you would expect to see is only, right, you would expect to see the pyramids of Giza and Mount Rushmore, and that's about it, <laughs> to show that we'd even been here. And the same thing, you know, that's the thing I'm trying to get these so-called skeptics to, to realize, is that the planet was just totally and comprehensively remodeled during this transition from Pleistocene to Holocene. And it was so extensive that whatever existed, it's gone. And what would you expect to find? Well, you know, metals, they erode, they rust away. Plastic eventually is even degraded. And I'm not saying that some civilization back 20,000 years ago had plastic, because the point is, is that we followed one particular technological pathway there's nothing to say that that's the only technological pathway that an evolving civilization could follow. And then some of the things I've been writing about the, the, the Grail literature, one of the, the premises that I'm working on there is that the Grail is a symbol for a lost technology and that there is a whole other potential technological uh, evolutionary pathway that could be followed that has nothing to do with fossil fuels has nothing to do with you know automobiles or airplanes or any of that. It could be completely different, and it could complete could could produce a civilization that is as advanced as our own in its own way, but looks completely different, right? I think the key to some of that is in some of the work of of uh, Nicholas Tesla, some of the things that he was looking at, um, some of the things that Wilhelm Reich was experimenting with before he was hauled off. Uh, to a federal pen uh, in the late 1950s. Uh, there's a number of different lines of research, to me, that are pointing to a possible completely alternate way for a civilization, advanced civilization, to evolve. And, of course, that's not even considered a, a possibility by the so-called skeptics, right? What they do is they look and they say, okay, here was these, these you know, spear points made out of chert. Well, that's all, that represents the, the highest level of cultural development, right? But the point is, is that if tomorrow an asteroid struck the Earth, civilization came to an end as we know it, and it, it, since it is all interconnected, right? If, if you have a major a, a regional catastrophe, like Hurricane Katrina, for example, well, what you have there is you have, you know, total devastation of New Orleans in, in that area. <laughs> But you have intact infrastructure everywhere else. So you have the resource base to go into the devastated area and rebuild it, right? Um, you know, just like they're doing with the great tsunami that, that wiped out Japan a few years ago. They're able to go in there and rebuild. But in the event of a global event where you might have like two years of agricultural loss and a billion people dying or more, half the population of the earth succumbing ultimately to the after effects of this, well, civilization is going to take a huge hit, right? If you don't have the means of you know, extracting the fossil fuels from the ground, boom, we're done right there. Civilization is gone. Pull the plug. We're done. We're back to the Stone Age. A thousand years from now, what are we doing? People are, have, have reverted back to the means of survival of a Stone Age existence. 
they're ba- basically making spear points out of chert, out of obsidian. They're, they're, and, and this is the kind of stuff that's now left in the archaeological record. The buildings that we've built, the skyscrapers, they're gone. 10,000 years from now, they're gone, you see. The automobiles, the airplanes, all of that is gone. It's rusted away, right? Even, even the plastics under, uh, are, are, it's now suggested, some of the evidence is suggesting that plastics are not forever, that they have a few thousand years lifespan, but they're actually bacteria that now consume plastic, right? My point is that when you understand how severe the climate and environmental changes were, say, at the end of the last ice age, well, it's easy to begin to understand how, well, whatever was going on is gone because the world that as it existed then is gone. It's not the same world. It's a different world. And when you see these, you know, when you travel over the channel scablands, for example, and you're standing on the edge of a thousand foot precipice, looking down into a chasm that's, that's five miles wide and a thousand feet deep. And you realize that this was created by four or 500 million cubic feet of per second of water an ocean moving over the land, stripping away hundreds of feet, hundreds of feet of bedrock. When you're standing there and you're realizing, wait a second, the surface of the land used to be up there, 500, 800, 1,000 feet over my head, and all of this material has been removed. You know, when you begin to realize that, you go, okay, no matter what was here, no matter what was along this river valley 15, 20,000 years ago, it's, it's gone because... Like I can say, every river in North America shows evidence of catastrophic mega floods at one point. Every river that I have looked at, you can see once you learn to recognize the signatures of these mega floods, it's apparent everywhere. Well, we when saw, I took Graham we, Hancock. Go ahead. Keep go going. ahead. No, we saw it in Calgary here. Well, where the, like, there was that little flood in Calgary, and I think I talked about it on one of our previous episodes. But I went for a walk to the river, that one of the, the Bow River that leads to the city, and it had completely yep. redirected itself in a day or two days, like completely, yeah. in, in completely day. changed the path of the river. And I always remembered hearing about the meandering rivers taking hundreds of years or thousands of years to, to carve that. But yeah. really it happened. It happened literally overnight. Yes. What people need to understand is there are two modes of global change. The, the gradualistic, more uniform, uh, pace of change that we've experienced during historical times, and then these, these punctuation marks within that, where you have change compressed within a matter of a few days or even a few months that might otherwise take thousands and thousands of years to accomplish, right? And we have to recognize that that is part of the continuum of change, and it's just as real as the incremental stuff that we see day to day. Um, in fact, in some cases, it's really it's more real because one of these events can come along, like I said, and it can ch- do as much geomorphic work in a day or a week as, as might years, otherwise yeah. take yeah. tens of thousands of years. Yes, yes. Yeah. And this is part of the reality of life on Earth, that, that people need to become cognizant of that and, and realize that this particular mode of change during which modern civilization has arisen is only one of the modes of change, and that the geological record of this planet shows that over and over and over and over again, there have been 
massive convulsions, massive upheavals, concentrated periods of change in the record that have, have completely altered things literally overnight. And our future as a civilization, as a species, totally depends on us coming to terms with this reality. Probably and this best is why I get frustrated people. when I see... Yeah. I mean, I, at some point we're going to have to go out there and start slapping people upside the head and say, look here, get your head out of your ass and look at the real stuff. It's right here. And if you doubt this, come with me for a week out in the field. And let me show you itself. Let the earth speak to you. If you don't believe me, let the earth speak to you. Let the sky speak to you. Let our ancestors speak to you. Okay, if you don't believe me. Because the message from the earth, from the sky, and from our ancestors is going to be consistent. These days you have to reconvince half of them that the earth is round. Oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Let's not even talk about that. No. no, we don't have to. We're going to send up a balloon and double check for sure. Is Darren going to be riding up in the basket on the balloon? <laughs> We're going to send up a chunk of calf's, Graham's calf and some pot seeds. Or, or, oh. and Graham, some, you're smaller. You might be a better candidate for because we, we have to have an eyewitness, don't I'm, we? Yeah, I'm heavier, though, so th- I'm going to take up too much of weight of the, on the balloon, so Darren's got to go. Well, you know, if it turns out that the world really is flat, then we need to do, I want to do an expedition to the, uh, what is it, the, 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 the Arctic circle that, that forms the rim. Isn't that it? Isn't that yeah. what I've seen? That, that, that we're surrounded by a wall of ice? We'll go down for a rim Isn't that job. It? So, yeah, let's have an expedition because I would like to see what's on the other side of that wall of ice. That sounds I'm, like a project. I'm really serious. Sounds like a big project, but we'll do Nipigon first. Yeah, yeah that sounds it. like a much funner project. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how good the fishing would be there. I I fucking hate the cold too. <laughs> but you're living in Alberta, I know. so hey, I'm a victim of circumstance. You don't got much choice, do you? On a lot of levels right now. Yeah, check out America.ca slash G-A-S-A if you want to check out that. Uh, Are you back on that? I thought we gave up on that initially. We can't give up on that. No? We're supporters. Jesus. All right. Right on. Well, thanks for what coming. Yeah. Thanks for coming oh, on, Randall. Are hey, you going to wrap it up here, Darren? Or what? Yeah, that it's time, time or? to yeah. wrap it up. Yeah. yeah, thanks for spending so much time with us again and uh, giving us a little update on what's going on. I think it's appropriate that we had an automotive impact right before a couple of days yeah, we before had we a, started talking about cosmic impacts. Mercedes, a cosmic yeah, you had impasse. A, you, had, you had a micro catastrophe. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it could turn into you a know? macro. I mean, this will be, <laughs> we'll see what happens. For a few people, but yeah. that's a problem. I don't think yeah. it ever gets to get out of micro no matter how terrible it gets. Oh, well. Yeah. It'll be fun. It'll be an adventure in its own. Well, big thanks, Randall, for coming on the show, man. We really appreciate it. And as soon as you guys uh, figure out what's going on with Gnosis, let us know. We'll come on, of course, and we'll do our best to promote it as far as we can. Cool. Yeah. Well, you know, I always enjoy hanging out with you guys. Right It was on, a lot of Randall. fun. You know, that driving through the Rockies there a couple of summers ago, that was just awesome fun. Oh, yeah. That was great. That was fantastic. Yep. Yeah, we'll do it, it again. It was. We'll do it again for sure. Absolutely. We will. All right. Yes. Okay, Randall, All right, we should man. let you go to bed. I'll, uh, I'll be talking to you guys soon, and um, yeah, hope the rest of your month in April is great, and yeah, we'll be in touch as, as we firm up 
uh, plans and stuff. I'll keep you guys in the loop. All right, buddy. Sounds good, okay. brother. Thanks a lot. All right, man. Okay. Have Bye. a good one. You, you too. too. Bye-bye. Bye. Now was a chat with the one and only Randall Carlson. <clears throat> wow, uh, that we was accidentally another, did another three hours. Another mind blowing one. That was good. Could, could have been the best three hours yet. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a great one. We got pretty uh, passionate over the state of things right now. This is good. Yeah, of course we did end up back on Spreaker halfway through the episode. I caved and got Spreaker again. What is that? What? So we could do a proper audio stream, and we could start offering that at least. Oh. If we're going to do that and the YouTube's crashing, at least it's something that works now. Everyone said that the Spreaker stream worked great. I hope it sounded better than the uh, the old the old one we used yeah, to use. Yeah, yeah. It it's, the same, it's the same as that we used to use there. So, what? How does the Spreaker sound, guys? Let us know because it sounds good. Because the other one, what was the Everyone one? said it sounds good. What was the other one we had again? Mixler. Mixler was terrible sound. Like, it was really bad. I mean, yeah. here we do, we go to all this time to try and make our sound good on audio, and then you do the live stream, and it sucks. Boom, Might boom, as well be on boom. blog talk radio, if, if that's the case. Watch your fucking mouth, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. All right, guys. Thanks for hanging out, everybody. Really, yeah, speakers sounded great is the feedback. Speaker? Sounds fucking great. Wow. So fuck really? you. All right, good. Okay. Yeah. How much was it a month? It's fucking twenty dollars oh, US. Twenty a month. Eh? Just so it's fucking add it to the 30, list. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. Never ends. Big thanks. Without our black budget people, we couldn't do it. That's right. So I'll figure out a link for that shit, and we'll let you know. No stumbles on the audio. That's good. So yeah, I think that's about it, eh, buddy? Big thanks to our supporters, and uh, yeah, 